Travis here tonight as my co-host. How's it going, Travis? It's going well, James. How about yourself? Good. Katie will be here shortly. Uh, she is doing, you know, she's the one that does like parent stuff. I don't do all that. Uh, but she will be here shortly. Uh, da, 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 da. Let me get to our stuff so we can go ahead and do our... Yeah, I'm going to get to it. It's here. here. All right. Let me go ahead and do all of our sponsors. And then sponsors. We, and then we can get into to the show. And the reason that I, I made Travis come be on the show tonight. I, I need somebody that understood big words. All right, Lil's Shop of Horrors. Lil's Shop of Horrors is a small feeder and pet supply business based in San Antonio, and they regularly schedule feeder meetups around San Antonio as well as other neighboring towns and cities. They offer shipping on their feeder insects, ice pods, and are working on starting shipping on their feeder rodents too. All feeders are raised on a nutritional diet that optimizes the health of the reptiles and the amphibians that consume them. Uh, go give our friend Lewis a shout out over at Lil's, L-I-L apostrophe S, Shop of Horrors over on Facebook. If you're in uh, Texas or anywhere really, talk to him. See what he can do to help you out. He's got some great feeder insects and some feeder rodents. He can help you out. Uh, moving right along. Hey, my phone just told me that Katie's home, so she'll be here shortly. Oh, uh, Herps. The next Herps show is Corpus Christi, February 24th and February 25th. Then over to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, March 2nd and March 3rd. Then back over to Bryan College Station, Texas, March 9th and March 10th. And then the Rosenberg, Texas show, which is... Uh, our new home show, which is March 16th and March 17th. It's like don't know, 20, 30 minutes from the house. Uh, Slidell, Louisiana, April 6th, April 7th. Austin, Texas, April 20th, April 21st. West Monroe, Louisiana, May 4th and May 5th. And then down to Lake Charles, Louisiana, June 1st and June 2nd. As the upcoming Herp shows come see us. Uh, we will probably be at Lake Charles. We will be at Rosenberg for sure. I don't know. We'll see what else we're going to. The ones during the summer are much easier to make since I'm a teacher. Um, VivTech, if you need an LED UVB bulb, check out VivTech products. They have them in stock. They just made a whole video. I posted it over on our Facebook page. You can get you an LED UV, UVB bulb that will last you forever. I think they have a two-year warranty, but they'll, they'll last you past two years. So, two-year manufacturer's warranty, and I think Ryan said they've clocked them at four years. At four, yeah. Uh, try and get that out of any other UVB bulb you've been using. It's not going to happen, um, which is my problem because... I really want the dimming ones, and that just means I'm going to have to buy a whole new bulb, and then I don't know what I'm going to do with these bulbs, and I can't wait for them to run out because it takes forever, but they'll go at some point. What I need to know is if Ryan and Erica will let me send back two of the first calls that I have, because at the time I ordered them, I needed them, but now I actually need a jungle instead of first calls, Ah. and I really don't want to have just two bulbs sitting here doing nothing for me. <laughs> well, I happen to know the person that owns the business. So we could see if they could do that. You could put in a good word for me. Put in a good word. Uh, if you do need to order a bulb or a smart device or anything, use code gumbo 22 and save 15% on your order. Uh, I mean, it does help that we get a kickback from that, but still go use code gumbo 22. Help us out. I think I've hit all my sponsors. I'm good. I think we can get into the show now. All right. I, uh, hold on. I'm going to be good. I'm going to pull up the title that I put for our guest because it's about half a mile long and I want to make sure I get it right. And I know I'm going to mispronounce some of it. So here we go. <laughs> All right. So our guest tonight, you go ahead and pull him up and I'll introduce is Bill Ryerson. He's comparative 
anatomist slash herpetologist of Cornell's College of Veterinary Medicine. Ooh. That was great. That was perfect. Anatomist was where I really thought I was going to screw that one up. I, uh, I, I first saw that word when you sent it to me. I'm like, that's not a word. Uh, but it is. I just It is a word. It, it is. I hope it's a word. Otherwise, I've been lied to for a few years and I've got, I've got more questions than – well, that's science, having more questions than answers. So, Unfortunately, yeah. science. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Bill's on here because Travis shared an article or a paper in our discussion group several weeks back on, uh, is it teeth, snake teeth shape versus striking the way they strike. I, I know there's, the title's much better. I, uh, I butchered the shit out of it there. But, uh, <laughs> no, you did, you're doing great. This is, this is exactly what it is. The tooth shape, position, and size all reflect how a snake seizes its prey. Yeah, they, they yeah. bite you. They, they they bite you. The only it thing I well, the only thing I need to know for sure is that arboreal snakes hurt like a son of a bitch. That's the one thing everybody needs to know. They hurt like a son of a bitch. So maybe we can get into why that is and why like a corn snake does not hurt as much. I mean, you're, you, you've really actually hit the nail on the head and you've also like leaned into some of the future work that I'm trying to do. Um, so, so to, to take a couple of steps back, there's a, there's a relatively new snake book that came out November, October, 2023, um, by David Penning. And he asked a bunch of us in the field to sort of contribute chapters to it. And I've been playing around for a long time with like how anatomy interacts with how snakes do stuff. Um, and to probably no one's surprise, when you think about snake teeth, everybody thinks about fangs. It's just fangs. Are, that's it. Fucking, that's the book. What a nerd, yes. Travis. <laughs> I don't even have a copy in my house. That's amazing. As soon as I saw this was coming out, I pre-ordered it because... I had a feeling if you mentioned a book and it was about snakes, that Travis probably had it. Probably this, had it. this looked awesome to me. Yeah, I haven't I haven't gotten all the way through it yet. In fact, I've only barely cracked into it. But I say I'm I'm chapter two, so you best like get moving on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happens after chapter two, but I, I I'm sure it's great. Um, but like we've been talking about fang shape, and fang shapes come up a lot recently. There's a lot of different groups that are trying to figure out like why certain species have certain shaped fangs and. People keep arguing that it's diet, that if you look at certain certain cobras and you go into the, the well, predominantly the cobras, but also like the rattlesnakes and some of these other venomous groups, if it's got this shape of a fang, that means it's eating this type of food item. And a lot of my old work was basically just describing the mechanics of how snakes strike, like how do they make contact, how fast they're moving, like really basic stuff. I just happen to have a camera that can do it. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I buy it. Like, I don't think it's just diet. I think you see like these animals and anybody who's kept hots, like, you know, this, they strike differently. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I don't really have access to, you know, some of the elapids and some of the vipers. But I have noticed, as you mentioned, that when I, when I've been bitten by my, you know, my Brazilian rainbow bullet. Yes. Those teeth are horrible. Right? They, it's a little bit worse than your, than, you know, in my case, like the king snakes, the garter snakes. Fine, whatever. They can latch on and I'll go get a bucket filled with water. It's fine. So I started asking some questions. I'm like, well, 
what about the teeth in other snakes? And there was a resounding like shrug. Nobody cares, right? If it's not fangs, why do you care? Well, Travis has no, kukri. Still hurt. Travis That's has kukri snakes yeah. with their fucked up teeth. So, oh yeah, a kukri oh, yeah. snake will mess you up. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've I've heard a couple people. Uh, uh, someone was telling me about one of those recently. Like, yeah, I was it was fine. I was totally just watching it, and then all of a sudden it moved, and I I was in a lot more pain than I thought I would be. And I was like, really? You don't say, Can't James. James posted a video this morning about why you shouldn't boop snakes on the snoot. That's true. And it's a rainbow boa in the video. This woman has she this rainbow. Oh, is it really? Struck on the she face. She puts it up in her face like she's about to kiss it, and it gets her right it on the face. It gets right on the face. Yeah. Stupid. I was like, I, I, I've yet. kept rainbows long enough to, to be like, you know what? As long as it's not looking directly at me, I'm probably okay, but I'm still going to keep a very suspicious eye on this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, my tan bar scrubs are the same mm. way. Oh yeah. Like even, even my little one, she's only like three and a half feet. But when I've got her out, as soon as she turns towards me, it's like, and get in my arms. Well, that was the first time I saw my big adult male rainbow yawn. Cause look, I've had red tails prior to that point. And I assumed rainbow boas, they seem like kind of like that. And so they probably got similar teeth. And then it yawned and I was like, holy shit. These are like emeralds. Like, what What the hell is wrong with these teeth, and why do they have them like this? Fun fact, though, that was the snake that got me over my fear of snakes because he had the personality of, like, a 90-year-old Yeah, he's man. Aw- he was awesome. I loved him. And he was Ugh. he moved in slow motion, everything he did. He he was one of the coolest snakes, but that was the snake that got me. Now, you had a baby red tail that was super fast, like, could fit between my face and my glasses. It yeah, but they're all small. fast when they're little. And it was super fast and it was like brand new. And I was like, no, this thing is too much you, for me. I can tell rainbows come out of the mom biting. But it's funny because we've never yeah. had another rainbow with his personality. No, none of his babies have his personality. The, mom, the mom's not, that, the, that is not bad, but no, he was by far the best. It was so, so like that was the rainbow boa that started me. So now I'm like, what the hell is wrong with all these well, other snakes? That was also, that was also my first pet snake uh, that was my own. And uh, that was a horrible purchase. That should not be anybody's first pet snake. Don't ever do that. Um they have certain requirements, and I don't know how he I mean, lived he through all lived. of it. He lived. He was like twenty-two. He lived through he my entire my entire learning process of how to take care of a rainbow boa. Yeah. I mean, he died at what seventeen, eighteen? So. No, he was almost twenty. He was twenty. Yeah. That's, right. that's yeah. a yeah. That's a terrible first snake to have. Yes, horrible. You had him yeah. the whole time no. we've been together. Yeah. No, I went together. to I went to a reptile show and like that's pretty. And of course, the guy behind the table was like, "Yeah, you should buy it." <laughs> okay, so I bought it at. So the 17 years old is like, yeah, it's a pretty snake. I don't know anything about this, but it's a boa. It can't be hard. Yeah. Yeah. He was almost. That's what, that's what the internet's for. <laughs> the internet was different back then too. It was not, not as useful. <laughs> not what it is now. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> oh, but yet. Oh, no, Katie, no. Bill, Bill, Katie. There we go. <sighs> so. Swap out Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> so, so let's get back. Your article, you, you decided you wanted to find out about sharp pointy teeth. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I, at the time in the lab, I had a. Yeah, I had a couple rainbow boas, and I had some juvenile reticulated pythons. I had two adult retics, uh, a Burmese, a couple sandbows. Like, I just had this smattering of species because, like, you know, a lot of the students buy them as pets, and then when they graduate, <laughs> families don't want them at home, and suddenly I've got 30, 50 animals in my Or life. they get caught in the dorm with it, and they can't have it. That may have happened once or twice. Um, <laughs> I have to, like, I'm completely by, by myself in my home, and I'm like, just in case anybody is listening. Um, and so we were, we were just like 
doing the high speed strikes and we were just trying to figure out like, you know, these, these king snakes are just kind of like lunging at these things. They're, they're not really like striking because everybody's, you know, you, you, when you see like snake strikes on YouTube and discovery channel and whatnot, they always show vipers, right? It's always like a rattlesnake or a sidewinder striking its prey super fast, wide open game. And then you see like a king snake or a garter snake do it. And you're like, that's not the same animal. <laughs> yeah, no, a garter snake, they just walk up to it and just start eating. Yeah, I'm just and so I I was I was sort of curious. I was like, I wonder what the differences are here. And um, I actually got turned on to the idea by a uh, now retired uh, snake guy, uh, Dave Kundal, who was at Lehigh. Um, and Kundal's done like, everything. Um, and he and I talked about it. And he's like, oh, you, you might want to look at the teeth because I had this idea with, with boas a long time ago. And I never really did it. And I was like, all right, I've got a couple red tails. Like, I'll try it. And I hunted undergrad do it. And, you know, snakes are supposed to have, like, the teeth are supposed to be the same. Like, all the way through the mouth. As long as they're not fangs, the teeth are the same. And you, anybody can look at a red tail and go, no. No, yeah. They've got, they've got those, you know. Those front the, teeth. The are... teeth at the front. Are, yeah, they're just beasts. Um, and so we, with a uh, student of mine, we, we were able to show basically like, oh, those teeth in the front, they're super upright, right? In the lower jaw. And basically, and I do, is, I've got a lot of practice at this now. <laughs> Rat, snake. They, they, those front teeth are the ones that hit the rat first. So they make contact and they like get into the rat. All the teeth in the upper jaw are those like really kind of curved backwards teeth. And those will just slide over. And so they hit, those teeth slide over, the body comes over, it starts constricting, does the same. If they miss for whatever reason, they'll hit both jaws at the same time, those curved back teeth, and they'll like drive through the rat. I've got a couple great videos where like it rips the rat like right out of my student's forceps because it's just moving so much faster than they can react. <laughs> Needless to say how fast I could react. And now those like curved teeth hit and they pull back and start to wrap it up. And I was thinking, I was like, I, there's gotta be more here. It's not, there's no way red tails are this special. So I'm going to, while you're talking, I'm going to play a video. I've mm -hmm. got the video of the retic doing it. Yeah. And so I want to show yeah. that while, while you're, you're talking. So we started to like explore. And so we, when we first did the retics, cause like you can feed baby retics basically every single day if you want to. We started collecting some of those. And so you'll see this is that like upright strike. Yeah, there are ticks on that right side there. Oh, wow. And so it hits that upper jaw or it hits the lower jaw first and then just like rotates over, starts constricting. Your king snakes, super not fast. But you can see how like tiny those teeth are. Like they're they're shorter, they're more broad, they're they're more curved, they're not they as upright. They will jack you up. Yeah, right? Or maybe retake will just ruin your day. Play it one more time while. So if anybody's that's listening to the yeah. podcast, I will post the video over. You have to hit the back arrow, not the oh, that's weird. play button. Yeah. Thanks for the, the lesson. <laughs> and so we saw that, like, we could basically, no matter what snake we grab in the lab, we could basically break them down into these two groups. So your, your strikers are moving really fast. They're getting to, like, three meters a second. They've got these big upright teeth in the in the lower jaw. 
they have these really recurved teeth in the upper jaw. And then your, your other ones, what we're calling lungers, they're not moving as fast. They're making contact with both jaws at the same time. And the teeth all have this kind of what we think of as like the generic shape. They're super curved. Um, and, and by the end of it, it was just like, you could, you could show me a video of a snake striking and I could go, I bet you, I know what those teeth look like. When they're, and they're striking in a curt, like while spinning, like that's a, that whole bottom jaw hitting and then the top coming over. They're striking yeah. while wrapping at the same time. It's crazy. Yeah. And the only ones that don't wrap and strike like that are, we got a few videos of copperhead striking. Um, I went to a colleague down in South Carolina and they basically do the exact same thing. Now, obviously the teeth, like the teeth in the lower jaw of a copperhead are weird. Um, they barely have any, they have like maybe three or four on the lower jaw and they're not super upright or anything at all. And the kind of idea I'm working with is that's because copperheads don't hold on. Yeah. Right. They strike, they're out of there. They don't want anything to stick in. You know, if, if the fangs go in, the venom's injected, they're absolutely 100% out. Um, and so you can see kind of there on, on this image, and this is from, this is from the, the paper that I wrote with the undergraduate Tate Van Valkenburg. Uh, if anybody's watching and is, need somebody who can do scientific illustration. This is about as good as it gets for me. So you're <laughs> going to have to look elsewhere. This was I mean, a it's really so hard. Much better than I could do. You also were feeding on <laughs> ping pong balls. That's got to be a weird diet. Yeah. Well, you know, like, like you take physics one and you're like, pretend everything's a sphere in space and then just don't worry about the numbers. <laughs> so you're like, you can see those big upright teeth and lower jaw. They're the ones that actually hit. And then once the food is sort of in the back of the mouth, those teeth are just there to make sure it doesn't, it doesn't escape, right? It's going to be latched in at that point. It's sort of game over. Um, and so we've got a, a ton on these different species that just show like I can start grouping every single one of them into these two categories. The groups I'm missing. Um, and this is a little bit, if, if, you know, people watching, listening, have these species just throwing that out there um travis is one of you probably <laughs> i have no lapids i have ideas on how a lapid should strike i've seen some stuff on on obviously like king cobras feeding on on you know other snakes is everywhere on the internet yeah um and i i have a very <laughs> limited uh sample on the arboreal species all of mine are like semi-arboreal all right, so I've got like my juvenile reticulated pythons, which will feed in the trees. Um, you know, I've got red tails and then I've got Brazilian rainbow bones. Um, I don't have anybody that you would sort of say it's like 100% arboreal all the time. You know, as much as I'd love to get an emerald or, you know, a green tree, like I don't quite have those yet. <laughs> um, because I think the thing that's happening there is like you think, you know, emeralds uh, to me is like the textbook of this. They've got those big gnarly upright teeth in both jaws yeah and so i this sort of running idea is that they can't right the way the red tails do and the way the the retic did in the video they can't just hit and launch their whole bodies over because they're perched on something their food maybe is perched on something else maybe it's you know a, a flying bird or something like that 
And so those upright teeth basically have to make sure that they, they grab it out of the air, basically, and have to be able to withdraw that back to where their original perch is. Um, Did you find the Brazilian, the rainbow bows to do the curve as much as, as say a bow constrictor does, or is their strike slightly different? I just wonder, cause you know, their teeth are so much more to me, so much more emerald than boa constrictor just with the yeah. size. I wonder if they're strike, if they don't curve as much when they strike. So they don't, they don't, um, they'll open their mouths a little bit wider and they will not, they will not launch themselves all the way over the way that like the retic did in the video. You'll, you'll get that curve over and then they'll immediately rotate back and they'll, they'll bring the food back with them. Hmm. Um, they are a little bit more, you know, the, uh, the individuals I had are a little bit more heavy bodied. They were certainly more used to feeding terrestrially. Yeah. Um, and because they were somewhat difficult to film, when I'm feeding them, they are feeding terrestrially. Uh, very, very limited stuff on getting them to actually feed from a perch. But they definitely show, you know, when you start really looking at the behavior in detail, they do seem to just like, I've got it. It's coming back with me. I'm not going to try to like launch my body and, and sort of constrict it where it was on bringing it over to me. So what I'm hearing is if anybody is near Ithaca, New York and has an emerald, mm-hmm. an Amazon tree boa or green tree pythons, you need to go visit Cornell and find uh, Bill. You, you don't even need to come The closest I can in. think of might be Keith McPeak. Working with Sanzinia. Oh, that'd be yeah, but see, but they're not really. A, they get called a tree boa, but like if you've ever taken care of them, they don't really tree boa. They really? they, they like to lay on the ground a lot. They don't tree boa. They don't. Like, that's a verb now. They don't. They, they don't. Oh yeah. I was tree boeing this morning. <laughs> I mean, they've got the whole green thing down. At least half the population, <laughs> and and they got the look, but they're they're kind of on the ground. I, I think that's the that was the closest I could think of. Yeah. Um, you can no. you can get this because I don't need um, I'm pretty good on that on the high speed data. I just need to see where they make contact. So you know, Warren I, uh, Booth might be good because he keeps a lot Russian of yeah, Russian burger eye and stuff. So anybody with an iPhone because you can do that whole or any phone really nowadays you can do that the slow mo and you can slow it down frame by frame. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything arboreal yeah. or I do it. Everything I have is definitely terrestrial. Yeah, I find. I mean, I've, I've got Candoya, but. But they're a weird Trying one. to get them filmed while eating would be a little bit of an adventure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, a friend of mine just tried to send me a because he was like, "I've got Womas," and I was like, "Film the Womas!" Like, what? A, if I ever say no to that stuff, like, just shoot that guy. He's the imposter. <laughs> and yeah, he was. He, he came back and goes, "It turns out it's a bit of a struggle to to, to film them." And I was well, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the problem with Womas is the, Womas feeding response is so crazy that like you don't have time to prep for anything. Everything is food yeah. in front of a Woma. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be yeah. interested to see. Have you done? Have you done the sand boas? I've done the sand boas. The, just owning sand boas, knowing how fast they are from going slug to biting when you have food, it's crazy. And the way that they can strike back, and it's just they are they are one that's, that surprises me. So I'd be very interested so they, to see how that goes. They had super high accelerations. Um, they do, they do strike, you know, they were definitely, uh, they don't, they don't end up with like really big top speeds because they tend to strike a lot closer. Yeah. 
right? It's, they don't have the dramatic, like, you know, snake is way over here, food's way over here, right? That that viper, the retic, where they're really far away. Yeah, they that. lack that whole neck needed to really get that strength. They're just right? all body. Yeah, so, all you, so you get them, and all of a sudden, like, they're here, and they'll accelerate just insanely fast. Um, they don't end up hitting really big top speeds, but they have, like, a really narrow gape. Um, their teeth kind of just look like king snake teeth. They certainly not, you know, they're nothing like the kind of needle-like ones you would see in the, in the other boas. Yeah. Um, and so they ended up kind of like in the lunger category because of just where they sort of fit. Um, I just imagine a slow-mo of them is just like someone take a sausage and just throw it at a rat. That's, that's got to be what it looks like when a yeah. slow-mo. Just Yeah, they, they definitely, and I mean, they're, they're just the most precious little things. I love them so much. But you're just like you're getting nothing, right? Because most of the animals, you know, they're they're sitting in the arena. They're they're always watching me or my students. And you put the food down, and they'll sort of turn at it. They might turn like back at me just to see what's going on, just to make sure I'm not doing something stupid. And then you're sort of moving the rat around, and then they'll hit, and the sand boa will just rat comes in. It doesn't move. Nothing's moving. Nothing's moving. Are you dead? Alive? What's going on, buddy? And then all of a sudden, it's it has done its thing. Um, so the number of the sandbows are super frustrating because they you can't predict when they're about to do stuff. And they will, like, it's nice because when you're doing the high-speed video, right, you've got this camera set up, you've got these lights, and it needs to be striking, like, perfectly perpendicular to the camera because otherwise your, your math just gets bad. And the sandbow could be facing, like, facing right at you, facing off at an angle. And it's like, fine, I'll strike it whatever yes. angle I need to. I don't care what your stupid setup is or how it's Friday and you want to go. Like, I don't care about any of that. This is go why do I don't just reach want. into a Sambo a tub. I, I find a hook, <laughs> I, I get them, and I'm like, I'm not just doing this. They will strike you out of yep. nowhere. Yeah, exactly. But they're, yeah, they were, they were some of the, we ended up shooting a lot of videos from them from up top just to see how quickly and how far they would turn um to approach a prey item and we're hoping if someone gets off his butt to get that written um in the next year or so so i have a i have a question and you may have covered this before i got here tonight we kind of talked about it i think maybe before we got on here but go ahead i don't you're gonna ask go ahead what am i gonna ask go ahead i don't think you know is it not what we talked about earlier what did we talk about earlier just ask a damn question so what is what is the point of this research that was not what i was thinking like ah. why like why why this because like but no like that's a valid answer <laughs> it's, like if that's the reason it's science totally the reason is because okay <laughs> i mean that's fine i was just curious uh, i i am curious um and i hope i'm not alone um about how these things evolved where they come from how they got there they are the only group right so like you have lizards and lots of groups of lizards become legless. Yeah. And for the most part, this is a harsh way of saying it. It's kind of like an evolutionary dead end. So wait, there's more than one type of legless lizard? Oh, yeah. There's European. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have oh, European yeah. legless. But there's a ton of, we're used to the, the Eastern US, legless. I'm used the to European, the ones here in the US. Two the, or three different ones in Australia. Yeah. The Europeans like the legless geckos, dumb. This the is not a okay. Legless skinks. Yeah. The, yeah, no, they're Europeans a whole bunch. Have big, okay. That, 
big white one you always see. It. Well, you don't see them show as much anymore, but the huge white ones. That's the European ones. We have the really colorful Eastern ones. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they show up. There's like a bunch of different families that have like a group that's become legless. And for the most part, it doesn't like it doesn't go anywhere. You don't suddenly end up with like 500 legless geckos right. or legless skinks. Um, snakes are different. And so there's been a lot of ideas about like, so why are snakes different? Like, why is it that, you know, snakes happen and all of a sudden you've got a ton of them and it doesn't happen with the lizards. Um, and so I'm very interested. My bias is like how they feed. Is it something about, you know, that whole, you know, all the bones in the skull being able to move that, that cranial kinesis that gave them an advantage. Like all of a sudden you can eat big food items. That's it. That's the game. And are we sure that, um, do we know the, the order in which that happened? Was it that then no legs or no legs then that? Uh, so, so there are some lizards that are, that have like, the lizard people would say they have kinetic skulls. I, as a snake person, I guess I'm biased there and say like, Oh, it doesn't really. Um, a lot of the, like, what we think of as the kind of older lineages of snakes don't have super movable skulls. Um, but they're also really specialized. They're the, they're the, like the blind snakes. Yeah. So they're, you know, underground feeding on ants. Um, they've got their own crazy weird specializations. Um, the idea originally was that it was uh, constriction allows for the explosion to happen because you've got a couple of limited groups. And then when the boas and pythons basically figure out how to constrict their food, everything goes nuts from there. Um, but now your research is saying it's not the constriction, it's the teeth. I'm, I'm going to say the teeth are part of that role. That there's okay. more. That there's it's more the involved with the teeth than we realized. Yes. And that yeah, the it, teeth are another symptom. I would say it seems like a sort of hand in hand thing. Like if you go back and watch, were you there for the video, Katie? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah I was. My short term goes fast. <laughs> like if you, if you watch that video, the, the teeth and the way it hits, you know, the teeth are giving it something to stick to that animal. Right. But they're also acting as a fulcrum for the body to be able to start that constriction right. real fast. Versus when the king snake gets it, it just it bites and then it brings it back into its body. Right. So it's kind of more a bite and it, like, side swipe it than that. Yeah. Its body. Over the top. yeah, and for uh, a yeah. high school evolution uh, example, since uh, so I just is taught. Is that what you just taught? I just taught. Uh, you got to imagine that over that time of the evolution of those teeth, there were a lot of them where they weren't as curved and they probably missed meals and that dies out of the gene pool. And so you end up with boa teeth the way they are versus them being all like king snake teeth and being less curved. So it works its way towards that direction. But uh, yeah, I think, I think the, the, what most people would say now is that it's the ability to eat really big food items that makes it happen. And so whether like how much of that is the skull can move to do a bunch of swallowing stuff, how much of it is, um, you know, the constriction allows you to deal with something that's bigger than you. Like how do you bring down, you know, to do the ridiculous example, right? If you're a, you know, if you're a Burmese python and you're trying to pull down a, you know, a really large mammal, that's hard to do when you don't have those limbs. So, you know, constriction allows you to do that. Having a big skull that, um, that, that is able to like move around, all those individual bones can move around, also helps you do that. And then the teeth kind of serve as that interaction point between like, Okay, so like, how do I grab onto something that's this much bigger to me, 
this much bigger than I am. And then also allows me to get into constriction. Has anybody looked into the, so when it comes to diet of some of these snakes eating larger animals, have they looked into the evolution of that? Is it they eat larger animals because that's what is there or is it more energy efficient? And so that is the reason they go that way instead of a lot of, there's, you know, there's a lot of species that don't have the ability to do the, do that. And they're eating smaller meals more often with like colubrids, you know, eating smaller meals more often. Uh, is there a, I guess a risk reward there? Is it the reason they're eating big stuff and they've evolved in that direction to eat big stuff? I don't think we've got a good handle on that um, because there's so many specializations that these groups have when it comes to eating the big stuff. I mean, uh, Steve Secor, who's in Alabama or Auburn, um, studies their like the digestive tract, and the reason he does it is because they will like basically shut that whole system down when they're not feeding. Yeah. Like it completely atrophies down all the way. And then it strikes something and all those genes turn back on and the system starts rebuilding. itself. Yeah. We've talked on here before that. I knew there was an article at one point that came out that basically said, uh, the, the internal organs shrink, they get smaller, use less energy. And then when they eat, they get, they get bigger. And then, and that was that argument for keepers that want to power feed their animals. And you're like, well, you're never giving your animal that chance to relax. Less. And its organs are always working overtime. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. I think yeah. the heart like triples in size Crazy. and the digestive tract, you know, does something similar. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I, going off the, the size thing, I think it's also going to be particular to species and environments and stuff too. Like you're going to see niche partitioning between sexes and stuff. Um, an excellent example of that is in boas, especially like the Kandoya boas, um, where the females are so much bigger than the males. And that way the males eat the smaller prey and they are not competing for resources with the females, which need bigger prey, more prey to be able to reproduce and perpetuate that next generation. So it, there's a lot more dynamic in there than just I get bigger so I can eat more prey. There's there's other factors that play into it. Okay. Oh yeah, and especially like our, our northeastern like our Nerodia, right, where the females get those bigger triangular heads, and they're doing like, you know, they're eating frogs and some of the bigger like sunfish and whatnot. Whereas the males don't have that like broadening of the head, and so they end up separating not only prey size but like. I guess, pray shape as well. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so this, this, the way all of these things interact with each other, you know, in some ways is really exciting. Cause you're like, Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, I can explore this idea. I can explore this idea. I can work with this person who does this. Um, but at the same time when you're like, Oh, is this, does this mean we know this? And you're like, I no, sorry. No. Okay. So that brings me to my next question. Um, and, and again, I, I just married into this and I teach English. So like I've been doing argumentative writing for the last two weeks. Um, Cause that's what we're learning in fourth grade right now. But it, it really fascinates me how people come up with ideas of what they want to research because my brain doesn't think the same way that any of your brains think. Um, but that's okay because we need people like me too. So if if you're doing this research, is there someone else out there doing the same research or is that not how it works in this field? So, I mean, it, it's, that's a really great question. Um, so oftentimes we feed off each other. Okay. So, you know, like I'll go to a conference um, and, you know, you, you, I gave, I gave my presentation on, on this stuff. 
And I had a bunch of people asking questions, like similar questions, like, oh, well, what about like, what about Sambos? What are they doing? What about this? What about this? Um, and often it depends on for a lot of us, like, what do we have access to? So um, there was a, 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 a woman who did a lot of stuff on like the Lapids, the Cobras and, and some of the other front fang, not front fang, fixed fang snakes. Um, she's from Australia. And she has access to yeah. a lot of those, a lot of those animals. Um, I happen to have kept wit. I shouldn't say way too many, um, but I've kept a lot of snakes in my time. And I've known people who've kept a lot of snakes in my time. So you'll, you'll, you'll notice that when you read a lot of my stuff, I don't, I do some work with some, some of the local species, but a lot of mine are the very obvious, easy to acquire pet trade species, right? I've got, all pythons in my data, red-tailed boas, rotaric spermies, uh, so many king snakes. Um, and so a lot of it is kind of like what we can get access to. Um, and some of it is definitely, I mean, there are always in any field and whatnot, there are people competing with each other. Um, I've certainly had ideas, I don't want to say stolen because they did way better stuff with it than I ever would, but like, that stuff happens, um, but often it's just like you're, you're rarely the only person to have an idea, but there's so many ideas out there and there's so many things to explore that most people end up kind of partitioning off their own little stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And then sense. if they're awesome, we work together. So you're, you have one big umbrella, but all the different raindrops are hitting the top and everybody's raindrop is different. Yeah. Okay. A, a good way to like, get an idea of it, Katie. So James posted up um, a link to all of Bill's publications and stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you go in and look I up remember, some of them, the ones, you're talking about. the ones that you can access and you read through them, and this is the way a ton of scientific papers will read, you know, you'll have something like, you know, however, a behavior can also play an outsized role as in Arnold's paradigm that can also explain variation in morphology and performance garland and losos like so you keep making these references to other people's work yeah that that you have used to help build your stuff and you'll also find that then you go read some of those other people and then they have found what you have written as well and they're integrating it in so I, it's I, a great big gordian knot of everybody kind of works with research i hated all of them for four years while i was in college and I had to do research and then do reference pages yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like, basically. It's basically one big, massive reference page, and you just have to hope that you're not overlooking something that yeah. needs to oh, be Oh, you always overlook something. You yeah. always are. And, and actually, I, that actually reminded me that a lot of the original ideas from the Pete stuff came uh, from a woman named Carly Cohen, who is now uh, – she was recently at the University of Florida, and she just shifted. I can't remember where she's now. She was looking at it in, like, super deep-sea fish. Right, some of like the big angler fishes, yeah. the viper fishes, where they have like those huge teeth, and then in between them they'll have like little teeth that you just cannot figure out. Like this thing's not doing anything. What's going on? And she did some really fancy engineering work that showed that when it does bite down on something, it actually helps distribute like how the forces get transmitted along the jaw, so that they don't break teeth and don't break their jaws. And then somebody else went, oh, that's a brilliant idea. I wonder if that's what like crocodiles are doing. It turned out it was not what crocodiles are doing, but crocodiles do have like differently shaped teeth yeah. depending on their age and whatnot. And so you, you often see that where you're like, I'm confused about the teeth stuff. 
And you start looking, and you're like, oh, this person's this person did this with with these deep sea fish. I wonder if that applies to my system. Or um, I saw this person did X. You know, oh, I wonder if, I wonder if I can do that instead. Um, which is where which is where a lot of those. So it's it's one of those where you know, like you're not only reading the snake stuff, and you're not only reading like the snake and lizard stuff, but then you're also reading like just tooth stuff in general, um, or you're reading like feeding stuff. Um, I was reading uh, today a, a bat feeding paper because I don't know, I might need to know something about bats. <laughs> so you end up doing that. And sometimes it's really inspiring because you're like, Oh, that's a really clever way to solve this problem. I, I wonder if I can bring that. Yeah. I find all of this very fascinating and, and very inspiring because you know, I, so I quilt and James teases me about it all the time. He calls it my old lady hobby, but like I can, you're the I youngest can, person, you know, that quilts. I, I'm not, <laughs> um, anyways, uh, but like I can get like this image in my head of what I want it to look like. And then I can pick the fabrics and make it work. And people will look at finished products and they're like, how did you come up with that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just saw it in my head. And that's how I feel like when I listen to y'all talk about like research and projects or, experiments and stuff like I'm just like because like why did that fish need those teeth okay well coming up with the idea to me I'm like okay that's that's doable I have questions about all kinds of stuff but like how do you even know where to start with how to research so, that so what what I find funny look I was looking through all, all your article all your papers and everything you you've written and then looking at the year and looking at what you're studying <laughs> it definitely feels like Early on, you were in someone's lab that dealt with frogs. And then once you got out of that, you were like, all right, we're not doing frogs anymore. I'm I done. my own thing. <laughs> I'm going to snakes. There's a lot of like frogs and salamanders in the early earlier ones. And then later on, it's like. Hey, some of that salamander stuff was cool. Oh, the jumping how, how, how the salamanders yeah. jump? I mean, that's like, again, that's one of those things. It's like, who would think, you know what? What's the mechanics behind salamanders jumping? Yeah. And, and what happens if they don't have their tail? What does that do to it? And it's then, like, like knowing how to I, I didn't it. know that I wanted to know that, but damn, now I want to know that. Yeah. <laughs> and like you were talking <laughs> You were talking yeah. earlier about the video and how like with Sambo is you have to film at a certain at a certain degree and a it's certain on a trial angle and error. And but I'm just like, how do you like how do you how does your brain even come up with how to yeah. figure it out? I well, mean, that's here, part I'll, of I'll it. I'll show you how it works, Katie. James, can I share screen? Uh, I don't. Th- I don't know if it'll let you. Let me. Let me try. See if it'll let you. If like I'm sure there's other research out there yeah. that have that has done yeah. some of this stuff. I mean, the salamander jumping one's a great story because I was my advisor at the time. So I was at University of South Florida doing my master's degree, and he studied salamander feeding, and he we would go collect salamanders. I was doing my own frog project. And we caught this little salamander and it jumped out of my hands. And after a string of expletives left, I was like, how did they do that? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, what do you mean? No, and he goes, oh, like we know they jump, but no one knows how. And I was like, all right. Fine. Now I got to collect damn salamanders and make yeah, them Yeah, now I got to collect salamanders. I just want to graduate. Okay. So or, 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 am I showing? Am I yeah, showing? you're yeah. good. Yeah. Okay. So earlier Bill was talking about um, like how he's looked at uh, red tails and things like that, but he hasn't been able to look at any real, truly arboreal things. Right. Um, and I went to this site called Morphosource. I love this site. You can find all kinds of 3D scans of things. And so this is the skull of uh, a BCI. And if we zoom in on it now, to- I don't know what that is. Thank, Thank you sure. so much. Thanks for you now. 
<laughs> I can't I can't get it perfectly horizontal. Yeah. But look how they lock together. Oh, we're totally closed. using this website in Zoology Club yeah. next week. This you can, is cool. You can see how the teeth, you know, it's got that recurve that we saw in um, the earlier picture of the the snake right, right, biting right. and the thing. So then if we go to let me you ever, different screen. Y'all ever see sometimes when they get their lips stuck on their teeth? I've had them every now and I've then they get me. snagged on their tooth. I'm like, God, you look stupid. How's this? It's like this weird little Elvis lip that they got going on. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. So then this is a Horchulanus. All right. You're going to have to say what that is. I don't know what that is. This is an, an emerald tree boa. Okay. And, you know, as Bill was talking about it and I was thinking, you know, I wonder if Morphosaurus has got these skulls. If you look at the skull here, you can see that those top Fuck those teeth. teeth. Those are horrible. They're, they're a lot straighter. <clears throat> which yeah. goes with what Bill was talking about earlier, how those straight teeth, they're used for really getting that grip when it, as soon yeah. as it impacts. So Bill was speculating, you know, I wonder if the arboreal ones, if they have a different tooth structure and if they have different strike methodology because their habit is causing them to have to hit their prey differently. Now, we don't know this for sure because, again, he would need some people taking videos and stuff. But just by, you know, just hearing him talk about that and me thinking, I wonder if Morphosaurus has something. You can look at this and you can see there is a difference I got, I got it in the tooth structure, yeah. which would then very much kind of support the idea of what Bill was saying sure. earlier of, you know, we see a difference in tooth structure of strikers versus lungers. Right. Now we have two different kind of strikers. We have the, you know, the semi-arboreal strikers like the boas, the retics and things, but more highly arboreal ones have gotten a different tooth structure than those semi-arboreals. So that might at least hint at, okay, this would be a potential third different sort of strike so I've got, mechanism. Yeah. I've got a way to make So that's that's the brain at work right there, how you come up with these crazy ideas. Now we I just can, need somebody to fill no, it. I can connect build. this. I can connect this for you, Katie. You know how when you open Pinterest for one thing? Shut up. Yes. And then an hour later you've looked at like something that's not even related to that one thing and you're way over here? Yeah. It's that. Yeah. So I was I was looking at that and I, I also love Morphosaurus. A bunch of my skulls from the analysis are from Morphosaurus. Um you saw like on, on on the emerald there, like a really stark line, like here are the upright teeth in the front, and then here are the much shorter, much more curved teeth. Um, probably I want to say around teeth like five or six. And all of those behind. So I'm gonna I'm gonna like I'm gonna out myself here. I'm I'm willing to put a very small amount of money. <laughs> very small. A lot for me, but small amount of money. To say like those those other teeth, those shorter teeth, are in no way involved in prey capture. That that's that those are going to come in, right? So oh, it's not even. It's like tooth. Yeah, like tooth five. Tooth yeah, they're probably just there the, for the for holding it while it works it down the throat. Yeah. Yep. So like like they're only really going to come into play once the prey has been like killed. We're done with constriction, and now we're sort of transporting it back into the esophagus. Otherwise, they're they're not going to be involved in in prey capture at all. Well, I've always figured the big, long teeth are there in our boreal snakes because their root, their margin for error is much smaller than a boa on the ground, right? They've got a split second to catch something, usually in mid-flight or about to jump off a stick, and they either have to hold it or it's gone. Yep. And so they've got to get them in them quick, 
whereas the guys on the ground can do a little more. Yep. Yeah, and I think the the other one, um, the other great one that would be really interesting to see, and again, if no one's going to let me get videos or keep these uh, because they're apparently these places have rules. Um, like a uh, like a Theris, like the African bush viper. I can get you some. <laughs> I, 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 I know a guy that breeds them. I can get you some. What? What? Uh, they're so hey, they're they're the prettiest things. We have, we maybe have they'll t- be a tax write off if they donate them to his. We have tons of them in Texas because there's a lot of folks that like them down here. He oh, yeah, say, I I think Phil Wolf might be able to get you in touch with some people. I mean, too, that sounds like a good, re- a good tax write off. He loves a Ferris, um, right? England. Donate them. Why can't I think of England's first name? You know, he does all the things. No, no, uh, not not in England. Uh, no. Got nothing. I'm friends with them all. So basically, like, basically you're just grown ups doing science fair projects because yeah, you come yeah. up with your idea and then it's like Alex. these are all the ways we can. Oh, Alex, Alex England. He does, he breeds um, little and bush These fibers. are all the ways we could figure it out, and this is how we have to prove it, and this is how people are gonna believe what we say, and it's gigantic. Oh, they don't do believe science. anything they say. Yeah, do science fair projects for a living. Yeah, yeah fancy I mean, like, science fair projects. The number, the number of projects, um, especially like the ones that have like the students as co-authors, are definitely ones where we are just like it's it's Friday afternoon and we're we're either like doing the animal care stuff for the weekend or we're just you know just chatting, and the students will be like, yeah, but wouldn't it be weird if they did this? And you're like, why do you have to go? Why do you have to go there? Why do you have to go there? Like now we gotta uh, now we gotta set up new protocols and I don't know what that's gonna. All right, hold on. I know what I'm doing so tomorrow funny. morning. <laughs> I just love that a lot of that's your so cool though. That's your job. A lot of your science yeah. in snakes here really does go into the hobby. Like a lot of it can be transitioned into how things are looked at in the hobby. Um, and I know it drives Travis nuts. And it drives me nuts as someone who has a degree in biology and keeps snakes. To watch people that barely passed high school science try to explain science on Facebook groups drives me fucking crazy, especially when they try to explain natural history of an animal and they can't actually name the country it's from. Uh, that part gets me. So, like, a lot of this is really cool. Like, some of the, uh, there was one I thought was interesting. It was, had to do with, uh, oh, damn it, I don't want to mess it up. I'm going through all, um, captive breeding alters head morphology and behavior in reptiles. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, that, that was, um, that project was a, a also a, like, serendipitous thing. So, I was given, um, I was given a rainbow boa. Uh, she was close to six feet long. She had, I want to say her head was maybe two inches long. Oh, damn. If that. Um, and the, the story behind it was, was that the, the keeper was totally fine with mice, but uh, were not okay with rats. Damn. And so they would go, you know, right? Like it's, it's, it's an adult mouse every three weeks. Then it's an adult mouse every two weeks. Then it's an adult mouse every week. And they were basically got to the point where they were feeding this thing like an adult mouse every single day. That's like how some, um, they used to do some carpet pythons. I remember they used to have mousers mm-hmm. that would just eat mice. And mm-hmm. like you'd have people feeding like 15 mice to a carpet mouse instead of one rat. They're like, it won't eat rats. I'm like, they don't fucking feed it <laughs> until it eats rats. <laughs> but yeah, so like this thing had this tiny, tiny head. Um, and so I was curious. I was like, I want like, some people have said this. It seems to be really hit or miss. I think boas, it does, or the boa constrictors, it doesn't really work this way. Uh, I, actually, I think Warren Booth did might have done a paper on this where they showed that like you can alter the diet of, of a red tail, and it doesn't mess with their head at all. 
I will tell yeah. you, I did get a red tail once from a guy who uh, it was in the military and then they found it and he couldn't keep it anymore. And uh, it was probably six foot when I got it, maybe six and a half, but the head was the size of like a four footer. Like it, I, yeah. it, it almost it felt was, like he had power fed it oh. and got it to six foot really quick, but the head didn't grow at the same speed as the rest of the body. And so, so weird. this thing should be eating like jumbo rats and I'm here feeding it medium rats to try and get it to catch up. And by the time the head caught up to the body, it was over eight foot long. Like that was when the head finally oh, wow. looked like it belonged on this body. It, it was so weird when I first saw it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen it a couple of times. And so I, I got a bunch of garter snakes and raised them on like different diets. And I was basically able to induce that, that head shape change. So you gave them like, uh, these were Eastern garter snakes. And so you, I gave them like one group I gave, like, I was really a, like mad scientist going like, I'm going to give them the biggest nightcrawler pieces I can find, like these big, like blocks of earthworm. And the other group is just going to get these, like the skinniest rosy red minnows I can find. And then another group is just going to get random stuff. Um, and so I was able to basically get really narrow, elongated heads in the snakes that were eating the rosy reds and these shorter, blockier heads on the ones that were eating the nightcrawlers. Um, and it's something I'm, I'm very, very interested in what captivity does to both anatomy and behavior, um, mostly from a conservation perspective. Because we, I mean, how many reptile species... And amphibian species, can you think of that our solution to them being endangered in the wild is to breed a metric ton of them, release them, and then kind of like hope for the best. Um, Louisiana, and I know certain Louisiana pine snakes, the only one I know for sure, because that's what they do. Sure. But, but indigos, yeah. indigos, yeah, yeah, indigos, yeah. Um, I posted the paper in the discussion group, but here is a key figure from that paper that Bill was just talking about. So yeah, so here you've got the, um, so uh, PCA uh, analyses are basically like, I create a, a, a shape and it takes a bunch of variables. And when you do the analysis, it condenses all those variables down to like what is called here, like a single PC axis. But it's often like a bunch of measurements of um, either like some, some element of shape usually. So if I remember correctly, PC1 here is... Um, PC1 is head and PC3 is width, or is length. PC1 is length okay. and three is width. Okay. So as we, as we started to like feed, right, the earthworm group is really, really far to the right. Um, and so they are getting much broader heads, whereas the like fish group is, you know, much more... Um, on the sort of negative PC3 axis. So they're getting, you know, they're getting much more narrower heads. Um, they are bigger for their age than comparative wild snakes. That's and this is just because I'm not allowed to feed them that infrequently when they're in the lab. Like there are rules on how often yeah. I have to feed them. Um, whereas ones that get like both food items have elements of both populations. They're like, okay, they have to have like broader heads to deal with the earthworm pieces, but they also ended up with a little bit more elongate because they are also having to eat the fish. But none of them are anything like the wild type. <laughs> none of them are anything like the wild type. What's the time length on this? So this is one year. 
man. Um, so you can imagine, you know, for some of these, you know, for some of these species, because I know, I know in New England anyway, um, there's a lot of turtle head starting programs. There are ones for, for wood turtles, landings turtles, spotted turtles. Um, and I've got, I've got some data that needs to, to come out um, because they'll grow these turtles. Like these turtles grow so fast in these programs. <laughs> um, I think, I think my data has it that basically I could get you in one year, I can get you a turtle that is the same size as a nine-year-old turtle in the wild. That can't be good. Dang. Right? Like that, that's kind of the, the hypothesis. Like there's no way that that level of accelerated growth is ultimately it's healthy. I say nature, yeah. nature didn't choose it to grow that fast. Even, even if you take out of the consideration having to find food and, and hard years and the reason they don't grow so fast. But still, nature – not that's just not how big they're supposed to be. You know, we look at people trying to get, get ball pythons breeding at like 18 months. You're like that yes. just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Right. And just because it's size doesn't mean it, it's sexually mature or. Yeah. I know in the turtles, they often do it because they're trying to get past those predators, right? They're trying to make them just big enough that the, that the raccoons aren't a problem. Um, because I, I didn't, I didn't know this till I, I got involved in this project. The, uh, biggest killer of hatchling landing turtles in like Massachusetts are chipmunks. Wow. I would not have guessed that one. Cause they grab them. Like, so the, the landings will, will um, like nest in people's yards and then the hatchlings emerge and they start meandering down to the ponds. And it's like those scenes you see where the sea turtles all emerge and it's just like the gulls and everything else. Apparently it's like chipmunks. that with chipmunks. They, they left the that out of Alvin or, and the chipmunks. I didn't see Alvin yeah, going right? after baby turtles. <laughs> He wasn't getting a hula hoop. He's coming out. <laughs> but yeah, it, it can't, it can't be good for them. Um, same thing. Like, like with, you know, some of the, some of the power feeding that happens, like, I mean, yeah, they'll grow fast, but like, Whoa, there's, there's so many like skeletal elements that are, that are having to be built and, and all of these, all of these organs that need to change shape. You know, we already talked about like, Every time you feed them, the heart gets bigger and the digestive tract gets built up. And like to keep it at that elevated for that long, you know, if you're trying to restore a population, are you really doing them that service? I will say, I think that, you know, the Orient Society that does and the Georgia Aquarium who do the indigo snakes, yeah, um, they do a lot of like most of what we know comes from that group. And they're really good about doing like the soft releases. They're, they're being very careful about like varying food types. Um, because I don't, I don't think, you know, blanded and spotting turtles are getting too many pellets in the wild. Right. I'm sure there's, <laughs> there's not a natural supply of pellets coming through, but like, yeah, what are we doing to these? Well, and to these critters, so if that's the goal. Well, and, and like what you saw with the, with the garters and, and I'll be the first to admit that I'm not going to change the way I do it, but you, these these mono type diets, right? I feed rats to my boas. That's what they get. They they're only getting rats. I mean, obviously, I know in the wild that is not their diet, and and maybe that explains why sometimes when you look at some of these wild boas, their shape is definitely different than what we're seeing in captivity. I, you, if you look at enough boas, you can look at the head of some of these wild wild boas, and someone gets a picture, and they're not they're not the same as what I have in a cage in the other room. So you know, maybe maybe these you know these varied diets, people that own like. Kribos who are, who are feeding them everything they can find in a Asian market. That's probably the best thing for that Kribo than going, here's a rat every week. Yeah. I mean, cause I mean, yeah, it is. 
I mean, it's so it's it's so weird because you you'll get um, you know the 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 species that I think about as being like really really mono diet are not even that mono diet, right? Like they're all eating rodents. Right? I'm I'm thinking, um, you know, certainly some of like the rattlesnakes come to mind as being like they're grabbing desert rodents and that's that's all they're grabbing. But even then, a, a you know a kangaroo rat is different from a house rat, which is different from a wood rat or a swamp rat. Like they even even within like what you would think of as like, oh yeah, they feed rats. Yeah. There's so much difference. And it's difference in what those animals are eating. Like it's just it's it's hard to 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 think about and, and try to like wrap your head around what would I have to do as a keeper? Because I'm I'm with you. I've got a freezer full of rats and that's what everybody is getting. And they don't even get African softwares because I can't even. I'm not. I can't. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah. So of all of all these things that you've looked at, because again, like I said, I've looked at all these things, and a lot of them seem like they really could tie into how we keep stuff. What do you think is kind of the the most uh, tangible thing you could take from everything you've looked at that a keeper could go, oh yeah, I, I see that, I could change that, or that that makes sense. Um, goes into the hobby. What, what could the hobby absorb from all of this? The, the easiest, I guess. It de- I would say it depends on what, what you want out of your keeping. Um, if you want an animal that is going to behave like it would in the wild, um, I think a bunch of it is, you know, we, we probably feed them too much and we make feeding too easy. Yeah. Right. Cause if I have, um, on one of my papers where I talk about how bad, uh, ball pythons get at feeding over time because if they miss I, I've, I've got videos of them just whiffing on a rat <laughs> like a dead rat that is just barely being shook and they're just way over here and they're shaking their head and doing all this stuff if I took the rat away and didn't feed that animal that that week or that month very quickly it would turn back into a much more, much more wild type animal, but we don't do that, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to waste that rat. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to take food away from your animal. I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I don't want to take food away from. Them. Yeah. Um. You know, we have to do a little bit better if we want more wild type animals. We got to treat them more like wild animals, right? Um. Cages that are, you know, what we would say is like full of enrichment, right? change the environment every couple of months, give them different environments to work in. They don't get fed on nice, even schedules and, and stuff like that. If you're, you know, if you're working with animals because, you know, you're, you're the aesthetic value. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything I could say that would really impact what you do. Yeah. Um, so I think it depends a lot on what, what you want out of the hobby and what, you know, what species and groups you're, you're working with, right? If you're working with, a, a you know, if you're working with a, a, a tree boa, let's say, or like a, an emerald, and it is a nice just display animal, then then make it a very obvious display. Yeah. Well, I guess that's... <laughs> The problem is sometimes you see you see these arguments on Facebook groups and and, uh, and it kind of comes down to what you're saying. Like, how natural do you want natural to be with them? Like, look, in the end, 
is any of it really natural? Uh, not really. I mean, we're keeping snakes in a box in a house. Like it's it's not. It's it's how fancy can you keep that box, and how can you vary up things to change it so it's not just a plain box in a house, but. I always have that that argument that it's it's not natural. I mean, look, we're we're picking traits that nature didn't choose, and we're in, emphasizing certain things that nature would say. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> um, and and we're not we're not really looking for the behavior. No one, most people don't want the actual natural behavior of their animal because go pick up a boa in the wild. It's not going to let you hold it. Like it's yep. that is the fact that we've gotten to where you can take them out and people are like it's like a puppy dog. I'm like, yeah, but that's that's not nature. Like, go pick up a like a banded water, like any water snake, any Nerodia, pick up a Nerodia, any yeah. of them. Yeah. They, they, they are not like a puppy dog, like nothing about them, but that that's nature. Like, you know, and, yeah. and so it's, it's a weird balance of, uh, I, I guess the argument of we need to keep them as natural as possible, as natural as possible is not, it depends on how you define that. I mean, cause in reality, it's not, it's not even close. Yeah. I, the, the difference between a wild snake and a captive snake is, it can be massively apparent. Um, my my African bull snakes, Sudaspis, I have a captive bred female, and she's super curious, super calm. I can take her out. I can handle her. She's fine. I have a wild-caught male. That is probably the angriest snake I have. I would say <laughs> that he is even more angry than the Kukri's. Um, if I come into the room, I can hear him hissing and growling in his cage. He will stalk along the back of the cage. And when he feels that I have gotten too close to that cage, he will strike all the way up, you know, 30 inches from back to front. And he will hit the glass or he will hit the side of the cage. Well, let's face it. There's nothing you're going to do in that cage that makes it feel natural for that snake, right? That, no. that snake was and, in nature. Know, and I have tried. Like, I, you know, I, I did what I could. I've got, I've got rocks in there. I have plants in there. I have taken um, like that, the rain gutter stuff. And I have made underground burrows because they are super prone to going into burrows underground and chasing things down. And he makes full use of those. But he, can, I mean, he can be in one of those. And I can hear him hissing and huffing because he knows I have come in. So he, I mean, he knows that he's not in the wild, but no matter what I do, it's not going to be the wild to him, but he still is very much programmed in that wild mechanism of, I hate everything. Everything wants to eat me. So I'm going to kill it. And so behaviorally, he's just absolutely going to be different than a captive born snake. And there's yeah. nothing you can do to really change that. Yeah, and I, I think for maybe for, for a lot of us in, in, in the hobby, it's, it's not necessarily what we, it's not, it's not why we keep these animals and whatnot. It's because, and, I, and this was sort of the, the question I know you asked on the, on the Facebook page, was that, you know, with these head starting programs becoming more and more prevalent, as more and more species start being bred in captivity to restore <laughs> these old populations, how do we help those groups? Yeah. Because if they're going to release them out to the wild, we do want animals that are going to be functioning and, and yeah, we want them the to survive. Well, Otherwise, yeah. what's the point? Well, and I think that's that's why it, it's a tricky thing. So uh, I have a problem. So Louisiana pine snakes are near and dear to my heart because I live in Louisiana. I own some of them, and and, and their whole uh, natural history I think is amazing. Um, I know people personally that could probably breed far more Louisiana pine snakes 
on a regular basis than the Audubon Zoo and the Memphis Zoo who are the ones in charge of doing it, right? But they have to be the ones that are in charge of doing it because that's how the whole program works. And then on the other end, the other problem is, you know, we have a lot of people in, in private collections who are like, we could do this. But again, we talk, you could breed them. But will those really be the best ones to – will they be prepared for the wild? Will, how do you know? You know, think about like uh, like axolotls. There's a trillion axolotls in the in the pet hobby. And there's a handful of them in the wild in one lake in Mexico. Like, yes, could we, I guess, restock axolotls in the wild? Technically. Okay. But are any of those axolotls prepared to be put into a lake in Mexico? No. And you yeah. could dump all, you know, million of them that are in captivity and the attrition rate of what survived would probably be so pointless as to make it yeah. not even worth it. We're just feeding fish yeah. at that or, point. Or it could, I mean, I mean, I could be wrong, but couldn't it also negatively affect what is out there in the wild? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So at, at that point, you could be hurting more than you're helping. Especially with... You know, when you consider that one of the major mutations in axolotls is a gene that's not even native to any of the salamanders Wait, at all. Are you saying they don't have jelly, jellyfish? You saying they don't have jellyfish DNA in the wild? <laughs> <laughs> are you telling me there are not glowing axolotls in Mexico wandering in that lake? Oh my god! No. That doesn't. That seems wrong. Well, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna check that reference. I'm gonna have to. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> they gotta be there. I saw, I saw it yeah, that, yep, that, that green glowing jellyfish gene definitely came. I'll, I'll, say, it, I'll, I'll say it like my, uh, my students. Well, what if someone put a jellyfish in that lake and then they had a baby with an axolotl? Wouldn't that. <laughs> God, I fucking hate kids sometimes. <laughs> uh, y'all, see, people, people outside of education will go, no one would say that. Yeah. They sure as fuck would. Oh, yes, if I went would. tomorrow, <laughs> they would say it right away. I've had the dumbest. What if we bred this to this? I'm like, that's not how this works. Today was the first day in argumentative topics. So basically, we read an article and then we they have to identify what the claim is, what the point of the perp, the, the writing is. And we've read everything from like, why we need to, the government needs to take over the rainforest in South America to like cats make better pets. Not true. Which is not true. That's in the article showed that it was not true. That's good. I mean, I'm going to give them good information, but like today it talked about whether or not you should have to do online school during a snow day. And the kid that said no was from Miami, Florida, where they haven't had snow for 46 years because we looked that up when a kid wanted to know how long it had been since they had <laughs> yes, snow. Yes, but they have Miami. hurricane days. And then the kid that said yes lives in New Jersey. And I'm like, they have snow on the ground like four out of the 12 months Yeah, you have year. to be a school. Like, it's not an option. Like, they're, it's this is totally different. So, like, today was the first day where they were like, but – the, they were like everything's doesn't match like you can't just take information from two totally different groups and say that it can go to the same claim and it was like this like light bulb moment went off look, for all of them and they understood how to look at opinion and sr373 10 years ago so excited where they this. where they took the northernmost species of bo- uh, boa or of a uh, python 
and said, well, these things can survive hey, hey, they can freezing live. temperatures in the wild, so Burmese pythons can <laughs> totally. go all the way up yeah. this eastern seaboard they can be to the all the way to Colorado. That's going to happen. That's how we got that's to what, That's what happens when you put rocks – that's what happens when you put rock scientists in charge of a biology paper. Hey, look, I had – my low kids were making those connections today. My GT kids were not on it today. They were struggling. Yeah, well, this this was but a I government was, report that was making that kind of from, thing. So. From rock scientists. Don't give me the geological. Oh, I remember people that. Tell me how where Burmese pythons can live. I actually read that article. Well, remember, remember you remember the one. paper that like refuted that was they they did my favorite kind of experiment, which is like, well, let's put them in an area where it might get cold and see what they do. Yeah, they 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 only put them in the Savannah River Research Institute, which is in Georgia, Georgia. and you know out in the winter. <laughs> Uh, in like 20 degree weather with snow on the ground and the snakes are sitting out trying to bask in snow and dying. And the only one that lived was the one that they decided, okay, we need to intervene on these snakes behalf because they're all going to (laughs) die. Well, hell, they they had they they had a cold snap. And it took them six months to get that one back to health. They had a cold snap in the Everglades. Respiratory infection. The cold snap in the Everglades killed Burmese pythons. I'm like, I don't need your paper. There it is. It, It got cold here and they died. I like when it gets cold enough that their weather channel uses like the frozen iguanas that are upside Iguana. down. Yeah, yeah. That no. always makes you gotta be prepared for when they'll fall out of the sky. Yeah. That makes me laugh. I, I have family down in that part of the world, and and they, they I get regular iguana updates. <laughs> I love the story. Again, I don't know how true it is if it's just, but I, I want to believe it's true. Where the guy like collected a whole bunch of dead ones, and then they woke up in his car. Yeah. I, I, I need that to be true because just the mental picture of these iguanas waking I up and going ape shit. I would wreck my car. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would never have them in my car to begin with. Let me back up a little bit. So I do. So I am smarter than that. So I looked at most of these. Answers. So the question for anybody that didn't see it, the question we posted over on Facebook was, how do you think captive breeding and captive care can engage with the current conservation problems? And and I think a, a lot of folks here. So so my, my dad had one. I thought was, my dad's not a reptile person at all. Uh, but he said, uh there aren't many pet hobbies that are so impacted by issues with irresponsible exporting or importing of wild specimens, which is true. Like dog, dog and cat owners don't really have to worry about somebody importing the wrong poodle or something like that. Like that's we definitely have to pay attention to that, which is also something that drives a lot of a lot of laws. There's a we talked about before our buddy Jason Miller-Radovich was on here about some of the laws they're going to try and pass in Colorado, which got knocked down thankfully, but it was uh, going to be a tax on every animal. every animal you have. Every single fish, every snake, and it would have been fucking ridiculous for someone like all of our friends out there that have obviously more than one snake. Um, our friends over at Colossal Constrictors, Eric uh, and um, I don't know, I just forget Randy. Uh, they sent me a thing the other day. There's something in Arizona where they're trying to basically <laughs> you don't have to have a warrant. Yes, I have this. That's actually no what I'm pulling up seizures. on my phone right now. Yeah, for for it's for a animal cruelty. For animal cruelty in air quotes because it depends on how they define animal yeah. cruelty. And, well, and that's the other thing about it. It is. Um, they said that they allow hearsay instead of actual it, evidence in yep. the conviction. Yeah, so a nosy neighbor who doesn't like someone can then give that person. Yeah. You know. So I, I just pulled it up on U.S. Art because it, it was in the U.S. Art email. That came out yesterday. Um, it, so basically, it's two Arizona senators have introduced bills that will allow for the warrantless seizure of animals and private property. So right now, we're protected because of the warrant. 
And that stops the government from having the unreasonable intrusion into our space. So what the bill is is saying, um, it reads, the formal rules of evidence do not apply and reliable hearsay is admissible in the post-seizure hearing. Yeah, and it's written in a way in which people can interpret it however they however want. However they want. And yeah, so this is... But I, I mean, not but only again, that, but this is an issue for anybody from a lower income house that can't afford a lawyer to take it to court. I mean, once their stuff is seized at that point, it's gone. But to tie that back into this, I'll, those people making those laws have no science background and are getting that stuff from people not using any science behind it. That's how all these animal laws that we have to worry about. There tends to be none of none of what Bill has done here ever gets applied to any of any of that. No, and there's two bills. The first bill, the hearing is actually on Thursday, like this Thursday in two days. If you have yeah, that's, this podcast, but, see, that's, now. Gonna, that's gonna hit on a lot of other people though. Like the, the whole because that's a that's a slippery slope going. Hey, we don't need to have warrants anymore to come into your house. Yeah. That's yeah. I don't think that will, I would like to think that's not going to pass because that 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 affects way more. Even though it's written for animals, it affects way more than animal people. Well, and and this actually goes yeah. on. This article goes on to state like other states that have already tried this have witnessed this the seizure and the killing of completely oh, yeah, the, healthy. The animals. article the article says they could give the animal to whoever they want to to take care of it, and then you're yeah. responsible for paying that person. For taking care of your animal. Yeah, and so it's it's basically when we give the authorities too much power you know, over that, it, it, it becomes it's, a problem. It's very similar to watching that video in Florida where they went in and killed all those Burmese yes. pythons uh, in the guys. And then they killed the boa as well. Yeah, and then they killed the boa, yeah. which was legal. Um, so going back to the question here <laughs> with the conservation, though, a lot of people – I don't think for the general, especially the, the things that are big in the pet trade, that breeding in captivity and releasing is the end goal. I think the big thing is breeding and educating is the end goal. Because uh, I think things like these people making these laws, it's education that they need. you know. And so I think we need to have this stuff bred in captivity and we need to raise these things in captivity so we can still show it to people. And, and I used to be a zookeeper and I, and I hate – I. I fucking hate PETA with every single fiber inside of my body. Um, and PETA's anti-zoo everything. But I've always said, if you take an inner city kid who's never seen a lion at once, they've seen Lion King. That's about it. How can you expect them to want to save that animal? But then you take that kid to a zoo and they're on the other side of the glass from it. And they're watching it roar and stare at them. And that's a connection that will drive that kid possibly to want to conserve that animal, want to save that animal. But if we don't have these things for people to see, we sweep them under the rug basically. And who's going to care about them if they don't see them on a regular basis. And so I think that's where our big part in conservation, as far as a hobby goes is education. Maybe not, Hey, I need to breed a bunch of these just so you can put them in a bucket and go release them in the wild for me. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a, it's a very good point. I think that's where a lot of us, right. That's where we got us some of our interests, right? We're going to the zoos and stuff like that. Um, what I had heard a lot from and what I've seen at least is, um, you know, for some of these rarer, harder to keep species, the, the, the hobby community has figured out a lot of the nuts and bolts. Yes. Right. In terms of how do you, you know, Cycling, cycling temperature in light levels to, to induce ovulation is, is something that came out of the hobby community that the professional committee, I shouldn't say professional, that's the wrong, 
the conservation groups might say like, okay, they're trying to figure this out from scratch. The hobbyists have already done a, a huge bunch of this work. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Like some of it is definitely like, how do you get interested in these? I, I feel like it's, it's a requirement that like all of us went to school and at some point, the guy came in with the big yes. snakes. Am I the we only went, person Whoa. in this world that doesn't remember this? Yes, I remember him coming to my Gosh, school. Gosh, I don't. It happened like once in my school. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I know fifth nothing grade. about this guy. Whatever happened to him. Fifth grade for me. I remember it. I don't remember. It's fifth grade. I just remember something. This gets brought up a lot on our podcast. But I've been that guy, guy too. I've also been that weird I've guy. I've been that person. I was that person for the zoo. And when we're not that person for the like, I've been that person, but I don't remember I having that I will be that person. person Earth Week for my youngest daughter's <laughs> school. Love it. <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, I might have to check my calendar. I might have to be that guy sooner than I want to be. <laughs> might have to have like something ready to go. But I, I think there's, I think there's, um, you know, there, there's stuff there that, that I think the conservation community could really learn from the hobbyist community in terms of, um, you know, how to, how to properly care for these animals, even if your intention is to like, just keep them alive long enough to, to, to hopefully get them to start breeding. Yeah. Um, you know, odds are somebody in the community has already done it. Well, and and it's a matter of, go ahead. Well, it's, if, if, if the conservation side could work with the, the private sector, which they don't tend to like to, right? There's a set of rules they got to go by. But if they could, and if they could use some of that funding, then I think you could fund some of these private keepers and help them do this much faster and better. Like if I needed a weird, like big monitor species of breed, I'm betting Mike Stefani at Mike's monitors can probably do it for me better than some zoo trying to figure out why this lizard on exhibit isn't wanting to lay eggs. Right. Yeah. He, he's got a basement full of zoo type enclosures and he's already, he's got tons of video of them going at it already. He can help you figure it out pretty quick, but yeah. there seems I mean, to be you a look at like the, um, There's a, because I, I have to keep referencing books because that's what I do. Um, there was America Snake by Ted Levine, who did, it was about the timber rattlesnake in the US. And he references that, like, in New Hampshire, when they found a bunch of, like, baby timber rattlesnakes in a spot where they were just not a good place to be, they gave it to, to Kevin over at NERD. Yeah. Because they knew Kevin had a ton of experience with HOTS, for better or for worse. And nobody in that nobody in that state system knows how to take care of those snakes. They had known Kevin. Kevin raises them. They get to be adults. Work on releasing them at that point. And it's and it just happened to be a very separate serendipitous. Like the the game warden who found them happened to be the game warden who's dealt with Kevin before. Hmm. Um. And so I think there's, I, you know, as you were saying with the monitors, I think there are, there are knowledge bases in these two communities that if they would just talk to each other a little bit more, we might make some real headway in some of these programs. Um, because if you think about what some of them, like the, the St. Louis Zoo does the, does the Eastern Hellbenders. Yeah. And the facility that they put together for the hellbenders is ridiculous, like way beyond what I imagine most sort of keepers could do, right? They've got like a 
quarter mile fast moving cold water stream. Oh, that's these cool. Things. Um, it's an it's an amazing facility. But I I can only imagine the trial and error that went into that. Where were what zoo were we at the other that had just a shit ton of hellbenders? The DC Zoo. Was it DC? That was when we were in that's DC right. for the funeral. They had like they had a crap it's ton. It's a huge exhibit. Yeah. Um, and the exhibit is like their lab. Like they have like the windows open so you can see into the lab. Yeah, it's lab just tanks and everything. tanks and tanks of hellbenders. I was like, that's cool. Um Yeah. I would like tanks and tanks of hellbenders. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> yes. where we were. Was the yeah, DC, it was DC. Zoo. Uh yeah, I, I just think conservation is it's a weird thing. I like I said, there's a lot of folks in the private sector, you know, and, and the problem is a lot of times in the private sector we also are bad at blocking ourselves from stuff. I bring up the Boland's pythons a lot of time, right? It's a ten thousand dollar snake. <laughs> or five that whatever it is, it's it's a ridiculous amount. So it's hard to have a conservation program around something that nobody can afford. Yeah, and like I saw a lot of the comments on the Facebook page, like, you know, it's going to lessen the stress on the wild populations and stuff. And, you know, I don't buy that so much because yeah, you know, when, when Bolin's pythons are catching $10,000 an animal, you know, that that's just putting a huge stress on the wild population. And when no one's breeding them in captivity, so. Right. And nobody's breeding them in captivity. Which, you know, so you're double screwing those animals because by putting that $10,000 tag on them, you're putting a huge, huge price on their head out in the wild. Well, that's like, I and think, then they all come into captivity and nobody can afford well, look, if you more could, than if one. If you of could them. give 16 Bolin's pythons to Keith McPeak, I think he could finally figure out really how to get them going. Or Absolutely. Any of the, but, the other guys that are doing that, if you could give them a large enough collection to try enough things. They could figure it out, and then we could have it dialed in and good. But the problem is, I mean, it's ten thousand yeah, dollars. Well, and the horrible thing about that, like you're, you're absolutely right. Like if there's anybody out there that could crack this, I absolutely believe that Keith is one of those people. Keith got out of Bowens. Yeah, Keith got out of Bowens because more and more and more, it was looking like you needed to have like a two point one or a three point one to be able to instigate really good breeding in those animals. And there's no way that Keith was going to sink forty, fifty thousand dollars in to those animals. He said it. He's like, I. He's, he said it. It it hurt him to just get a pair, and he could not drop for two more males because that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in cases like that, you know, saying that the captive industry is actually helping conservation and that, I, I call bullshit. Um, I, I get where know, some people argue. So like blood pythons, right? Blood pythons outside of using them in, a, in as pets really are skin trade animals. Yes. And and so it, you can try and get them to switch. Go, look, guys, don't kill them. But they're still going to remove them. Like it's still, They're still going to catch them and going to sell them to somebody. They're either going to yeah. sell them to you as a pet to take out of the wild and never to put anything back or as a belt. Like those Well, are- yes, but no. Um, over where they do the skin trade stuff a lot, they – actually have mass breeding facilities over there. Uh, Patias Carnata. Or not Patias. Um, Stinking Goddess. Whatever. Carnata. The giant king, king snake. Chinese king snakes over gotcha. there. They have huge, huge breeding facilities for those things. Like football-sized stadium breeding facilities for those things. And that's where they raise them for the skin trade and for the meat trade. So that's not even pulling them out of the wild. Huh. They're 
they're mass breeding them the way like we mass breed chickens and stuff. But they're not breeding them the way we do alligators, which I think would be a better method where we, I, I, we have yes to release no. a certain amount of them back into the wild from what you take. Yes, and that and that did help with alligators and alligators I mean now there's some a- about the way we raise them and stuff, they're I don't know, I don't want to say less prone to seeing this divergence that, you know, Bill saw with the uh the garter snakes and stuff because they're, you know, they're getting, I guess, enough of a varied diet in those pools. They're also, you know, they're not raising them completely indoors. So they're getting other things coming in. So they've got a a bit more diversity in the diet, like they would be having in the wild. But I have also heard studies like in the wild, baby alligators and stuff, they're eating snails, tons and tons of snails. And I know that's not what they're feeding them in these facilities. Yeah. No, there is. Yeah, um, once we get them up to two or three feet, and they're not as prone to being attacked, and letting them out, you know, it's helped stabilize them. But you're also protecting them in the environment, and this is a, an aspect that I don't think anybody really thinks about. In addition to the captive breeding and the you know the work that like groups like the Orient Society and stuff are doing, you need to maintain habitats. Yeah. And, you know, James, you were, you made a really good point about like, you know, yeah, those inner city kids who like haven't even seen a squirrel, their idea of wildlife is a rat on the subway, you know, like they're so disconnected from the wild and any kind of rewilding <laughs> project that can help there. Like, you know, people make fun of those bus stops that have got like the grass and the stuff growing off the top of them. And but those are actually fantastic projects because by having those little green islands in cities, it's it's bringing little pockets of nature there too, and so then people are starting to see nature and actually care about nature a little bit more, which then makes them more likely to want to help conserve some of these other areas of nature, which then gives you the habitats and you can focus on, it sounds stupid. You can focus on smaller things and that helps bigger things. Like I can't remember a couple years ago, like everybody lost their mind over the fact that California declared a species of bumblebee as a fish. Oh yeah. I remember that. And like, it, it was a stupid legal mumbo jumbo, but it was a way they could protect the bumblebee to protect the habitat to prevent the whole area from becoming a mind dredge, which would have not just wiped out the bumblebee, but it would have wiped out all this wildlife. Well, someone but who because teaches... somebody cared enough about the bumblebee to find that loophole, you have protected hundreds of species. Well, as someone who teaches high school kids, I, I see on a regular basis how, how and I've done it, I've, I've taught now for what, 13 years, I've seen the disconnect from nature happen more and more. And so I, when I, te- I teach more classification than any teacher I know because I really enjoy just going through all of the orders and classes uh, and going through all the mammals and all and showing them things because you'll show them something they had no idea it was real. I've had kids see pictures of rhinos and think that they were dinosaurs because they had a horn like that or ask if pterodactyls were still alive like you know how many kids I've had to convince that mermaids aren't real like it's it's insane I showed them a video of a giraffe giraffes fighting and then I've asked how many of y'all have ever seen a giraffe we're 30 minutes from a zoo with giraffes 30 minutes and like one kid raised their hand. They've seen a giraffe. I'm like, how do you not get the zoos 30 minutes away? They've got they giraffes. Have three there. days too. So it's this, you've, you've got to, we've got to have to use this hobby to drive conservation again, not so much in, in breeding always, but 
in, in educating and getting people to realize things exist. It's a, I think another yeah, good example of people caring. Oh, sorry, go, go ahead, Bill. No, no, I was going to say, it's, it's, the habitat thing is a, is a really crucial point because, like, we were talking about the axolotls before. And, like, yeah, you could breed three million axolotls, but if they're in a pond that is no bigger than a kitchen table, like, that doesn't matter. That habitat is not, it's, it's not sustainable. There's nothing you can do if there isn't more of that type of habitat for these animals to move into. So yeah, like with the Orient Society where they're trying to buy up huge sections of these longleaf pine habitat and some of these other habitats where you might be able to have someone or have, you know, these, these animals still there. And then also picking the, the, you know, the bumblebee and a fish one is, is a, is a great example where you're like, here's a way to protect a species that also then protects all of these other ones that we, can't get through the pipeline, right? Like, you know, you protect gophers tortoises in Florida and you're starting to protect owls and lizards and rattlesnakes, and rattlesnakes and indigo snakes. And like, you get these sort of keystone species, right? Is the, the popular word <laughs> that, and to do that, you have to preserve the habitat and you're preserving all of these things. And it's, yeah, and it's, it's, it really has to go a long way to getting those animals and you don't protect the habitats until you can get people to buy into that they're important. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I sat through a meeting once on Louisiana pine snakes and it was a meeting basically on the law. It was the logging industry having a meeting and they brought in a, a state person to talk about the snake as well. You know, uh, it's hard to get loggers to want to save Louisiana pine snakes or woodpeckers. Cause that's another one there. Uh, because the moment they find the snake there or they find the woodpecker there on their property, they can't cut down trees anymore and they can't make money. And, and then the, and the animal rights person goes, well, they shouldn't, you can't look at it. You can't yell at them for wanting to make money. They got, they've got to survive also. And so that's another thing you've, you've got to get them to respect those animals enough to want to set that land aside. And we've got to find a way to also allow them to still survive and make a living. You've got to do it on both sides. They, they told, I heard people talk stories in, in that thing where, people would find the woodpeckers in their, on their land and then go out and cut that tree down right away. That way the state didn't find the woodpecker on the land and they could say, they're not here. We can keep logging. Right. Um, and so you've got to get them to respect and enjoy these animals enough that they see their value in survival and that the pure value and money that they get from this land doesn't overcome that the need to keep that animal alive. And, and that's a tricky thing because, you know, Yes, educating the children is the best bet, but the child still goes home to a parent. If that parent is a logger or is in the oil field and they need to make money and they're all of a sudden the government's saying you can't do it through this area because we've got to save whatever it is, some butterfly, right? And I'm not downplaying a butterfly, but you know that's how it will get downplayed by the person that's like, I need to make money. I don't care about that butterfly. And so you've got to, you've got to get them to respect the animal for what it is and its importance and find a way to live with it. And that's really... That's the hard part. Well, and it, it it's like you said, you know, you've got, it's not just about the getting the kid. It's about getting the parents. It's about getting the community. Yeah. Um, and that's where I was going when, you know, I interrupted Bill. What um, a jerk, Travis. Yeah, I know. I am horrible. <laughs> um, but he was talking about the, the New Hampshire rattlesnake. Um, like there's, I believe there's a whole island up there that they have basically just made an off limits area for those rattlesnakes and it's the community 
that rallied behind it because like people explained how important these are and how really rare it is for that population to be where it is. And they got the people to care. So now they've got like a whole area that the community itself has put aside and the community cares enough about it that they wanted that put aside and they wanted these animals cared for. And it's not a, look, the only good snake is a dead snake and it's rattlesnakes that I kill them because they're rattlesnakes. Like it's a, look, we know they're rattlesnakes, but these are important and these are our rattlesnakes. And so no, you don't get to kill them. And not only do you not get to kill them, this is their special place. And we like having them here. So let me, I can explain, I can show you where there's definitely a disconnect. So when I do a classification, I show animals and someone sees an animal they think is weird. They've never seen. So many people always go, well, what does that thing do? Or what's the purpose for that? I'm like to exist. The purpose for that is to exist. It, it, it is there in that ecosystem. And I, and I tell my kids all the time, there's only one species on earth that you can completely wipe out and the planet gets better. Only one. And it's us. Like that, that is the only animal. Like we are the only animal that is really, you take it out of an ecosystem and it gets better. We quit killing shit. We quit polluting shit. And, and it's fine. We've got to find a way to live with the things that deserve to be there. And you can't think of everything as having to have a purpose that serves you. And that is the problem is that is a lot of people, when they see an animal, it's got, they've got to either find it cute or entertaining or useful. And if it's not, we don't need it. It's fine. Right. And so there's that education of why you've got to explain all of these things are important in an ecosystem. Um, and it's tricky. Like I said, all the time, I get kids go, what's the reason for that? Or what's the purpose of that animal? I'm like to be there. I mean, millions and of years can, of evolution. You can, find, you can find purposes if you stop and think, you know, people. I, only good snakes a dead snake. Well, great. I guess that means you like having rats in your house. I need to send you our daughter's presentation that she did on snakes matter. That was what she did her STEM fair on. I have a conference. Yeah, you know, you, you, I have a conference. I, 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 I saw that you took a picture of her. That was all I did. It was so bad. You should have taken a picture of the different panels of the project and put up in the post with her. I, know. <laughs> I, I, was, I was slacking so okay. bad. So I do want, there's one thing I do want to bring up to Bill and it has nothing to do with any, well, it kind of does. You've definitely not done the research on this animal, but I have you, something I want to you, talk about. You too. do evolution and anatomy. And I just wanted your two cents on this. Cause this one animal blows my mind. I think I know what this is. It's the, the fucking <laughs> crested gecko. I knew that's where we were going. With All right. This. So I just, just for, I just need to remind people, this is a lizard that we thought was functionally extinct at one point. We then found it. And we brought it over here. I, I am firmly under the, the impression that we only found the dumb ones. I 100% think there's a whole population of intelligent ones out there. We found the the helmet-wearing, window-licking, stupid ones. And that's why they just jump off into fucking space. The other thing that I don't understand is the tail, right? So they are a weird one in their group. A lot of other individuals that they're related to drop their tails and then regrow them. But this one has evolved to drop it. And never grow it back, which would be fine if they didn't actually fucking use the tail. It, they're, it's a prehensile tail. What kind of evolution goes, this is really functional and it can help keep you alive. You get one shot. So. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. All right. Here we go. I know you know this. Um, 
Just because something involved in one group does not mean it has to involve in every group. Yes, I get that. Okay. For, for our listeners who, who may not be on that, um, you don't have to be good or the best in terms of natural selection and evolution. You just need to be good enough, long enough to pass your genes on. Yeah. So if, if enough of these, and I agree, I, I've had a crested gecko in my time. and They're stupid. They're just stupid. They're, they're, yeah, there's no nice way of saying it. They jump into space. I've never seen an animal that just <laughs> just says, fuck it, I'll just take my chances. Yeah. Ours hasn't jumped in the classroom in a while. Yours has fallen <laughs> off the side of the tank before. No, so what he does is he jumps from one side of his tank to the other, and then we'll randomly hear this smack when he hits the glass. <laughs> And the kids are like, it's just Charlie. Like, they don't even care anymore. They're just like, whatever. He hasn't done that in a while, though. Not but if they're, if they're, they might have, they might have come from ancestors that had the ability to drop and regrow a tail. And because their tail is now way more used for other things, right? For being prehensile, they might have lost the ability to regrow it. But there's been no long-term negative effect yeah. of them dropping it. Well, and Jeff said in the chat it could be a midpoint in the evolution to a fully tailless crested gecko, where, like you said, they they could have had a function, and over time, yeah. it will not serve an importance. Oh, that's yeah. a good I mean, way to it, think about it, it. Yeah, if it if it doesn't do them any harm and it doesn't cost them anything to drop the tail in terms of their reproductive output, then keep dropping the tail. Okay. So just, just such a weird, a weird evolution. I mean, like I said, it, it, it would not boggle my mind as much if they just, if they didn't fucking use it. Is it my turn? That's the part that's well, like no, natural selection. I, I'm, I'm going to interrupt James Okay, go now ahead. I'll because, wait. You know, it, you're, you're, you're obsessing over the fact that evolution has to make sense. And the natural problem selection there is, does, and I'm just trying to figure sense, out the natural selection see, there. James, makes sense to who? Me, damn it. All of it needs to make sense to me. It's the only one that matters. You know, I, you, I, now I don't necessarily disagree with you that I think we managed to get the window licking. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an intelligent group hobby. that's living up high in the trees that we haven't seen. Like, but nobody's, nobody's out there studying how they behave in the wild. If you go out there and you do in depth studies of how they behave in the wild, it may become absolutely apparent to you why having a tail that falls off and doesn't grow back makes perfect sense. I mean it's got to Now there's a second there's a second part of this. The presumed to be functionally extinct but then found again. It's possible that that splinter population is a bottleneck population. Yeah. And that the original stock of crested geckos were able to regenerate their tail but the the smaller bottleneck population that then got explanted and was is now able to stabilize had a gene mutation defect that prevents them from growing back that tail. And you've just got a bizarre fluke population that that's all that's left because the main population, the original population, the original body of those yeah. animals could regrow their tail. And this, this side's population now that is all that is left because of that genetic bottleneck, this is just a perpetual defect well, and it's where they and are. And that would now. make more sense to me because 
if you look across lizards that regrow their tails, we understand they regrow their tail because one, they, they lose the tail. It helps give them a chance to survive. Something spends time eating the tail and they run off. And the assumption is they can grow another one and they can do it all over again. I, I would guess that uh, losing their tail does not have an effect on survival. They, they're not having to pull something into eating their tail or else they would still be doing it and be growing a new one so that the next time something tried to eat them. Like you would think that nature would have chosen it that way if that was, if that's the way it's chosen basically across lizards in general. Well, so, so hypothetically, what if, what if we, what if we thought about like this scenario? So I've got, I've got a splinter population, right? One group that can regrow its tail, one group that can't. And the one that is regrowing its tail, those are energy and material resources that are going into building that tail. What if my group that can't regrow its tail instead invests that energy into more young? Yeah. And then over a couple of generations, you've now basically pushed those out. So it, it, it might appear to be a defect, right? So the, I taught human anatomy for a while and the, one of the, one of the, I guess, fun, not fun examples of this is um, testosterone in, in humans because it makes males bigger, stronger. We get this wonderful facial hair that comes in. Um, Some of us. And (laughs) nobody on this call in particular, but you get these, you know, you, and in theory, in in our history, being bigger and more aggressive led to more mating opportunities. Once you sort of cross into your 40s and 50s and 60s, testosterone does a lot of negative things to us. Some of it makes it makes like hair thinning is a, is a testosterone thing, right? Um, part of the reasons that, that men have more or higher rates of heart disease and like arteriosclerosis, part of that is a testosterone thing. Um, so that is super detrimental. Wait, is that like a lack of su- testosterone that causes that? Mm. Overdose. Oh, you've too a, it's much testosterone. In, it's too much when when you're younger. Um, but that thing that 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 thing that made you like a potentially super attractive mate when you were younger, even if it's completely like, if we made it ridiculous and said that like men with high testosterone all die at the age of sixty, doesn't matter because at that point you've already yeah. passed your genes on, and if it made you a a if it made you better at reproducing early on, then who cares? Like it's, that's that's what's going to win. Gotcha. It's the peacock tail. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get you get a bigger and bigger tail until you can't fly away, so you're a much easier prey item. But it doesn't matter because you've already knocked up all the ladies, and now all of your babies are going to have those tails. And Sounds it's not just that, but all of your female progeny are going to carry that gene for great big tails to give to their sons. Okay. So it just, it kind of feeds back on itself. <laughs> this, is, this is all fun because I'm giving a test on evolution on Thursday. Are you? <laughs> so, it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. So I, I brought that one because that's always, it's always one in the, in the hobby where I'm like, I, I don't, I don't fucking get them. My turn. Go. Okay. So I have an article from ABC 13. And my mom sent me this today. And it's actually a very interesting article. And then I was like, oh, we're talking to Travis tonight. And then I was like, oh, we're talking to this other sciencey guy. I'm so sorry. I didn't know you very well. The other sciencey guy. And then I was like, I've been called for it. It's on his resume. And then there's James. James will have lots of opinions because he has opinions about everything. So, <laughs> I was, I, they're not opinions. They're facts. I'm I, right. I've, 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 
I've been I've been wanting to talk about this all day. So there's an article, and in no no no, just read the damn article. In Charlotte, North Carolina, or in Hendersonville, North Carolina, there is an aquarium and a shark just lab. The stingray that got pregnant. Okay, so yes, have you guys heard about the stingray? Uh, it's been floating around Facebook. Oh damn it! I'm just now getting to this party. Here's my question though. Sorry. Go, go ahead, okay. Travis. So. The stingray, who's 12 to 14 years old, has never been around any males in her tank. And okay. they put two male bamboo sharks in her tank. Now she is pregnant. Okay. And I'm going to go with Partho. I am too. I'm going to go with Partho too. I because know. They are somewhat related, but they're not so that related. The article talks about how, you know, people have written in and she's done research and they can hold male <laughs> sperm for years. But they've, she's never been around a male before. They were like, but they've noticed that there's bite marks on her body, which is a habit of mating with with the sharks. Also a habit of just a shark. Of in general. So, you know, the other much more likely scenarios that she's going through. Not the other much more likely. Well, this, the I'm only, reading the article. The only possible the scenario. Is that she's going now, through. Now, you're reading a. You're reading a pop sci article <laughs> well, and not yeah. an actual research article. Of course. <laughs> and pop sci articles about- are always going to go I loved for the it. flash in the bang. Like well, yeah. I, I I posted an article into the group this week of um, I think the headline read Scientists Find Snake Clitoris. Very I saw, exciting. I saw that one. And it's like, you know, like that is that is feels like I did not write that paper. That, that is the most clickbait way to it get really people is. to read an article that, like, when you actually read the article, it's not all oh, that yeah. interesting. This- the actual article, but you know, nobody's going to read a you know scientific discovery of a functional organ akin yeah. to well, this title. Email, this title says morphology, you know it says stingray possibly impregnated by shark, and I'm like, oh hell no! And but I you're also on the you're link. also reading that article into a podcast. Of animals that we are very familiar with. I know. Genesis so, happening. anyways, at the end of the mm-hmm. article, it talks about how, and and I'm assuming this. Speaking is of true. Warren Booth, who we talked about earlier. Oh, so this talks about how apparently they've studied parthenogenesis in sharks, which is very common. Um, and they talked about a bamboo shark that they have at another part of their facility, who's actually had 14 different episodes with parthenogenesis. Well. And this this says that apparently with this particular stingray, it's a very rare process. And so what I'm wondering, and yes, so Jeff Frederick just, so just said, said this. The testosterone and other hormones. So I'm my question was, do you think that the the possible attempting to breed by the sharks triggered something yeah, in her can, body? Can we stop pretending the sharks are trying to breed with it? No, okay, whatever. But yeah, being I, I around don't think that, the it sharks triggered. Are with it. But maybe them being in the water triggered her response. Jeff said the testosterone and other hormones in the water column probably triggered a reproductive event. I believe that way more. I'm wondering. It's possible that the presence of males of a... Bill does not look intrigued by this. related species might might have initially (laughs) triggered some kind of pre-breeding behavior so now I, I don't know me. i do not know enough about sharks and rays i'm most likely talking out of my ass i know Travis, that they didn't breed. Travis, like, i know enough to know they didn't fuck each other i mean i know i know, that. I know oh i'm not saying that they i'm not saying that they mated with each other right but the presence of the males and if the males are even biting and nipping at her and inducing behavior that would cause this animal to 
feel like it was breeding behavior, it could induce that parthenogenesis and make so it much yeah. more so likely. So what you're saying is this Ray's now, got some I'm kids. not saying that's absolutely what's happening. I'm just saying this is a hypothesis that we could <laughs> right. look at. Yeah. There is some argument that, you know, the parthenogenesis that we see in the hobby is as common as it is because the introduction of males will trigger females into a breeding cycle, whether or not they actually lock with the male, it can cause that parthenogenic, you know, yeah. event just because the male is there and it triggers them. Whereas if you don't have the male with them, they're much less likely to start down a breeding cycle, which would, which is what you need to at least start the parthenogenic. All right, all right Travis. So, hold on, hold on. Let's let Bill chime okay, in. Well, yeah, Bill there. needs to chime in, too. And I'm more than happy to have Bill tell me that I'm being an idiot. Or, you know, I'm question. waiting for Warren to come I, out of the okay, woodwork. So I'm, I'm covering my face because if Warren watches this, I'm going to feel so bad because I'm, I don't actually retain anything that he talks about when he talks about I'm up with our guest here. I'm up with our person in the chat that says, don't kink chain this um, thing. She just likes to be nibbled on. I mean, Travis is used to this because I don't retain much when we talk about genetics either. So this is why he's totally used to, like, bringing me down from my ledge. But so the, it, the article talked about how she would be a clone. That's basically what parthenogenesis Partho, yes. is. So they well, would. Well, so will they be able to like do blood work from this baby stingray yes. to show that it's a partho baby? Yeah. Okay. They can just call up War and he'll do it for him. I'm no, like, Warren please don't do be anymore. mad at me, Warren. <laughs> That's right. so Warren's sorry. done. He is done. He's done with Partho. Yeah. So Warren's sorry. done with his Partho it's, stuff. But it's, he's, it's, he's doing he's doing fun stuff with <laughs> bed bugs and other the, urban the pests, right. which is cool stuff. The problem with calling it a clone is. A lot of that also depends on sex chromosomes of a species. Gotcha. Because it's not always a true clone. Because the female so, can sometimes give birth to males, depending on how the cro- sex chromosomes are. Like XY chromosomes, yes, it would be. So a parthenogenic baby is not necessarily a clone, an, whereas a clone would be a parthenogenic <clears throat> baby? It depends so on like the, the isopod type of thing? parthenogenesis that yeah. happens. Okay. So usually what we see is something where they're half clones because it's a duplication of only half of the genome to create a complete genome. Which is, is how we get which is how we get these visual animals from het type animals in the hobby. It's ZW isn't it ZW reptiles that give birth to the opposite sex? Yes. Right. Because of the way the chromosomes work out, that the male is the homozygous one. The male is the homo, yeah. The males well, are no homo. WW and the females are WZ. Yeah. So, Or maybe, are they ZZ? I can't remember. But yes, the males the males are the homo gametic and no, the females are no, the heterogametic no, no, no in the ZWs. All right, Bill, chime in. <laughs> well, okay, that, that's how you confirm, right, in, like in, in war and stuff with the copperheads, right? It was, you had to, you had to test the male. That was really the only way you'd know for sure that it was Partho. Um, I am I am inclined to agree with Travis that I think it's more behavioral than it is potentially like just testosterone yeah. or its analog in the water. Um, I know more about sharks than rays. I know that there are um, in some of the reef sharks that do the like biting um, that in the presence of males and males start sort of you know start nipping at the females. You will see like the females like they're their skin gets a lot thicker they, they, because they're, they're having to deal with these bites and whatnot. So in theory, while also not king shaming the ray, <laughs> like it, it could be something similar where if, if the sharks are even just because they're, there's another thing in their tank, if they're just nipping at her, 
it, it could trigger a sort yeah. of behavioral she, cascade. That's what I was she's, thinking. Like she's been alone for a long time. She has. A little yeah. bit of attention I'm is being given to her. I'm excited about all this. She's finally getting some attention. I got to start mm-hmm. following this, though, because I need to. I am invested and I need to know what happens now. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I will eat my words if, if a half shark, half ray. Hell no. I will not I will, eat my words. I will be the first one to admit that like, shit I to was the wrong. <laughs> oh, as, as a friend of mine, a friend of mine just texted me who's watching this. Her, her and her friends have been making the joke that, well, that's how guitar fish originally came around. So, <laughs> anyways, my mom sent me that article, and I'm like, yeah. I'm totally bringing that, that, that floated up around on several on several Facebook pages, and I saw that. Well, uh, I'm late to the party. We're getting close on time, but I do I want one one other evolution thing. I'm I'm always interested in since Bill does evolution, and you talked about sambos earlier. Uh, I find the evolution of egg laying and live birth in many reptiles interesting, especially since I've read things before, especially with Samboas. You know, you've got um, Arabian Samboas and Saharan Samboas, which both lay eggs. Uh, but that evolution has not been a one not one direction thing. They've gone back and forth over time. Have you ever looked into any of that with some of the other boas or, or you know, other snakes and the how that works? Um, so I, I've done a little bit out of idle curiosity because we get – you know, in, in New England, we have almost entirely live bearing snakes. Yeah. Um, I would imagine temperature is the reason. Cause so I mean, that's, that's the kind of hypothesis, right? That it's, that it's easier to, you know, keep, keep developing young at a higher temperature. Cause totally, it, totally makes sense. there's a skink in Australia that I always reference to my kids that is currently going through visual evolution. Basically that ones in higher evolution or higher elevation are keeping their eggs internal and hatching them internally and releasing them. And the ones in lower, warmer elevations are still laying eggs, burying them in the ground, and they're hatching. But yet right now they are still considered the same species, even though they are obviously evolving different methods of of birth. I, I'll, yeah. I'll add a little bit to that. It's not just that. They actually had um, a documented case where one of those skinks laid – I think she laid three eggs and then like a month later yeah. popped out a live baby. I remember, I remember seeing that too. Yeah. <clears throat> Whoa. Oh, I'd have to, yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Crazy. Um, yeah. I mean, in the case of the skinks, right. If, if they're becoming distinct species, there's a, there's, this is, we certainly don't have the time to dig into this. Like, how do you start to define what different species are? Which is always a fun argument to have. <laughs> we had that argument today between me and other science yes. teachers. I, I always say the definition we always use in biology for high school, although is right-ish and probably enough for a high school student, is not right enough for past that. Right? We always say uh, if a species can interbreed, they they are the same species. But we know that's not true, and, and produce viable offspring. But we know as as reptile people, we've seen people breed ball pythons to every fucking python out there. Yeah. And, and, and they can, and they produce viable offspring. Um, and so I always, you know, tend to say organisms with similar characteristics and can interbreed. So like lions look the same and can interbreed lions and tigers don't look the same, but can interbreed different species. Right. Yeah. But back to your original question about the, like the eggs and the, and the transition stuff. So there's for, uh, for a lot of the snakes, right. They don't have, like true placentas, right? The yeah. ones that are doing doing the live bearing. Um, so in terms of like anatomical distinction between those that retain eggs and those that lay young, it's not that big of a switch. Um, 
And there could be a lot of reasons to go back and forth, right? We, we talked a little bit about temperature, but just suitable nesting habitat, where if you've got a, a, a population, let, let's be utterly ridiculous. Like you've got, you've got a, a desert animal that it suddenly moves, you know, a, a chunk of its population moves into like a swampy habitat. And now there is no longer any viable habitat for you to lay eggs in. If you just, you know, not, not too many things have to switch for you to, to retain those eggs. Again, if it gives you the advantage in the new environment, right? If you're the invader in the new environment and it gives you that advantage, fantastic. You do that for a couple of generations and they start pushing out to the other side of this little swamp and they hit the arid region again that maybe is better suited for egg laying. You know, it's not, it's not completely impossible to think that you could see that switch happen a few times as they sort of move through different environments. That's like, that's like one possible example where that could happen, right? Certainly if you're changing like elevation, you know, if you're, you're moving, you're moving up an elevational gradient, if it helps you survive and re- reproduce a little bit better. Yeah. It's certainly doable. Well, and Jeff said something about, he said this, the whole thing was interesting, but what about birds? He said, maybe birds learn better uh, nest building instead of adapting to live birth. And I would say, argue, you know, w- birds, we agree mostly evolved from, they evolved from dinosaurs, right? Which were egg laying animals. And then the bird lifestyle, I would assume the bird lifestyle of having to fly, find food, feed. That probably is not the best lifestyle for carrying young for a long term and still being able to function. So I would not see the benefits of evolving to what mammals do and carrying it the way we do. Like, and they may be, I mean, like get back to me in five million years, birds may be given live birth, but I, I would I say because it. of the path of where they evolved from and the lifestyle that they've evolved <laughs> to live, it makes sense to me to lay an egg where that you can leave and still function and come back. Yeah. You don't see a lot of, a lot of like precocial birds the way you do. Like if you think about the, like what we, what we assume are the kind of early mammals, the early sort of true mammals, you are, you are seeing more like the, you know, the young are either born early. And if you're thinking about like the marsupials, right? The younger, the younger born super underdeveloped and they are able to kind of latch on and stay tiny to the point where they are big enough. They're able to function on their own. Um, You don't see that in birds. You don't see birds young. Like they don't stay very, very small relative to the size of the parents um, early on development, right? Even when they hatch, they are very, very much super dependent offspring till you know, for a while and they're fairly close to adult. A lot of them anyway, I think of a lot of the smaller songbirds, they're pretty close to adult size by the time they actually are independent beings and independent beings sort of independent of their, of their parents. Right. And they might not look the same, right. A lot of the gulls go through. I hate gulls because they're so hard to identify. Right, they they like they they look different. They have different colors. They have different patterns, but they're still big birds relative to their relative to the adults. So if you're trying to transition to live bearing in something like the birds, I mean, there's there's you'd have to change so much of the timing of that development that would just be that would be wild. 
Yeah, and, and, and you, know, you talk you about have birds. To so much to the physiology of the animal itself, like a, for a bird to carry a live thing yeah. inside of it. Well, and energy requirements. The energy requirement yeah. for a bird is different than, say, some of our snakes or lizards that give live birth, right? Snakes and lizards, slower metabolism. So if they're not eating for a long period of time, they're still okay. Birds don't tend to have a ton of fat buildup on them, and they tend to burn through energy a little faster than others. So I would say that. And then Jeff said flightless birds, but flightless birds still would have evolved along the line of the rest of the birds from dinosaurs and all that. So they're still evolving from having eggs and probably have not found – there has not been a natural selection in reason to not lay eggs still. Right. Whereas the mammals that were alive at that same time weren't laying eggs, unless you get to Australia, which we talked about the marsupials, and then there's the monotremes. It's just a fucking weird island. Everything there doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. None of the flightless birds have to deal with the super large predators the way the other ones do. Yeah. Um, they said if they evolved from dinosaurs, that makes sense. They never had in their genetics to give live birth. Yeah. Where squamates would have evolved a different path. Those reptiles evolved a different path. And, and again, that, that having eggs and not having, they still technically, you know, we call it lot, like you said earlier, we call it live birth, but it's not, it's jelly filled eggs that they hold inside. And, and, and in, and in the case of that, that's even different. So we talked Sambo was right. They hatch out of the jelly filled eggs internally and then come out a snake. Whereas if like we talk about boas, you get a big old jelly filled mess of snake and, and clear eggshells basically. Um, so it's it's still an egg. It's just not an egg in the sense that we tend to think of like a ball python egg. So I don't know that whole the whole evolution of not having legs is interesting. The whole evolution of how they do, how they give birth, all the different types that we have, and then the evolution of the, the teeth, and then some having venom, and some the way they deliver venom through their teeth is always. It's just snakes in general are a large evolutionary clusterfuck that is very interesting, um, and and sometimes doesn't make sense. Like let's go with boas, South America. Madagascar, part of Africa, part of Asia. And then we have pythons scattered in there together. And we're like, well, they're related, but they're far enough separated. Why are they still like, why do we have them in Madagascar and on Africa? And we have pythons here and, and boas there. Like, it's a weird thing. Well, I would guess that's because they're all from the southern, the original southern landmass that was connected through Antarctica and, you know, still that relic. But population you, when it broke up. But you get into like the sand boas and the calabars. That's a weird branch to bring. And then you get into the like what you have with the you know Indonesian boas. Kandoya, like that. Kandoya, yeah. that that's a weird group. Yeah, but if you if you can if you go back geologically and you fit that puzzle yeah. all together, you're looking at areas that were all tied together. You know, but it's just weird. You, you don't find ago. you don't find pythons in South America, right? Because they had they had a a different origin range. Yeah, it's just I'm, I'm, the range of them in general. It's just a, it's it's an odd group. And then to have yes. your vipers evolve out of that and, and evolve the way they did, I don't know. Snake evolution is very interesting. I I enjoy snake evolution. So I'm with you on that one. <laughs> there's there's so much I feel like you can study mm. in snake evolution and, and in their anatomy that it, it's kind of never ending if you if you're just in that realm. You know, to someone yeah. outside of it, they may go, well, it's just snakes. But I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of different types. I mean, look at like the kukris. That's a weird fucking snake. Or like yes. stiletto snakes. If you're going with teeth, oh, they, yeah. they can bite oh, you with yeah. their mouth closed. That's a, that's a weird snake. If you want to have fun with Morpho, go, go Morpho source the stiletto snake skull. Those yeah. things are disturbing. 
That's those skulls are disturbing. Yeah, the way that the way that fang kind of like the way it's rooted in the maxilla and the upper yeah. jawbone yeah. is just—it's it, crazy. It is—it is a very strange skull. Or then you look at like gaboon vipers. Why, why do they need two inch long fangs? Like an inch would have done the job. They'd, it it would have been fine. It still size doesn't matter, Travis. It still would have worked. Just, <laughs> but anyways, we've been on for too long. We got to get going. Uh, but both of y'all are in the weird time zone where it's later. Ugh. Nasty Eastern time zone. I'm just hungry. And I needed to take my cough medicine like an hour ago. Well, yeah. you haven't died yet. Uh, Bill, thanks for coming on. I, I was very excited oh, about this. I knew Travis would be. That was why I told Travis to come on. Cause, uh, no, this was this was awesome. Yeah, this was great. This is great. I had a great time. And, and I'm I'm sure I could probably have you on and we could talk about some other stuff. Too. We could actually talk about frogs and salamanders jumping. At some point. Yeah, I have questions about that. So about we salamander to, jumping? We might have to have you back on. Hell oh, no. What will I do? <laughs> Hellbenders don't If jump. you ever need your college kids to, like, present to elementary age kids, like, virtually, let me know. We yes, our English teacher over here does our, the... An- I'm also in charge of the zoology club at my school. Um, and, uh... Yeah. English teacher with like eight animals in her classroom. They could literally just talk about the process of how they do a scientific experiment, and that would be like amazing. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And that would be cool. I'll so, reach out. <laughs> uh, Bill, if anybody wanted to reach out to you and see uh, your articles, your research you've done, how could they do that? Uh, if you want to, you can shoot me an email. Uh, it's just BillRyerson at gmail.com. Um, wow, you were looking up. Oh, that's a weird enough last name, though. Like if you, yeah, I, you know, I'm also a little bit older, so I was, I was an early adopter. <laughs> got out, got out way early. That's what um, people make fun of my Hotmail email. And I'm like, I tried the Gmail later on; it didn't <laughs> exist, so I just have Hotmail. That's right. I might still have a Hotmail somewhere, probably. Um, absolutely, I'm happy because I, I, I'm always happy to work with people, and you know. <laughs> Always happy to answer questions and talk to people. So absolutely. And, and he needs those arboreal snake striking videos, guys. Yeah. And also, you know, I know, I know some of us, and I hope it's not just me, that sometimes when we like lose animals, we hold on to them in freezers. Yes. Places. I think I still have some. I'm sure um, I have some in the freezer. Yeah. I also am very, very dedicated. I'm hoping to start a little bit better of, uh, better understanding of exotics in veterinary medicine. Oh, nice. And since I teach anatomy, potentially there are uses for those. Um, so if people have something like that that they're willing to sort of send my way, I'm happy to give them full credit and, and whatever they might need. Awesome. So yeah, if y'all, for all those animals you know you have in your freezer right now because we just end up piling them up in there and there's no space and then we throw them away, uh, get a hold of Bill. He wants your dead animals yeah. and, and tree snakes striking. That's, there's a, yeah. that's his Christmas Videos of your live animals and your dead animals. <laughs> Uh, Travis, if, uh, people want to get a hold of you for some reason, <laughs> uh, Travis, i on Facebook, uh, not the motocross racer. Don't go messaging him about snakes. He'll probably have you ever, me- have you ever messaged him, Travis? No, I want you to message you just once and go, Hey man, have you ever gotten snake questions? <laughs> I will do that. I will. I will take, that will be my job between now and the next yes. podcast. Message, message that I'm guy. I want to hear about that. I want to um, reach out to him and be like, just out of curiosity. <laughs> uh, I'm Snakes and Bakes on Instagram. Before anybody gets excited, it's not about weed. 
No, it's he not ba- about wheat. He bakes cupcakes. He bakes lots more than cupcakes. His pretzels are really good. Okay? And they're not and they're not special brownies. They're just brownies. So don't get excited. Uh, and then Travis's email. Go ahead, Travis, with the email. You want to give me an email? Weird ass email. Splundii, A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I at gmail.com. How does somebody? Yeah, I know James. James to James. Fucking plants. We- Weird ass plant. <laughs> Look, I I was really big into carnivorous plants for a while before I really converted over to being big into reptiles. But so. then, but at no point did you realize that you would like to be able, like, for people to actually email you and know what your email is, and not just guess. They hear that and they're just gonna start guessing letters. It's got a. An E in there somewhere? I don't know. It's- I got a seven. Where did you get a seven? <laughs> <laughs> see, but see, that's that's the thing, James. That way, the people who actually, the, like the people who really actually want to talk to me, will talk to me, and the people who just want to like bother me or are more interested in trying to make fun of me, pretend that I'm not actually a doctor, they they don't do it because they don't actually take the time to you're learn not, how to spell. You're not a real doctor. What, what the I hell know. do you know? <laughs> I mean, I thought he was a teacher for the first like year that we knew him. So that's, don't know how to wash my hands either. <laughs> uh, have, Travis, have you talked to Jeff about your your logo? Jeff was talking to me some about it. Um, Jeff, please fix his his god awful logo. Okay, okay. She wasn't part yet? of that. Oh, that's right. That was all. You, you weren't part listen. of that conversation. That was, you need to go back and listen to, to listen to one ninety nine with Jason and I. His logo. Oh, yeah, and James James basically spends half of it shredding my logo and my company. It doesn't take much. It's a horrible logo. <laughs> but I, he has probably one of the best photographs ever of himself that his wife took. That's fine. His the logo is hot the garbage. The one in the black. Mm-hmm. My God, is my favorite picture of Travis. Mine too. <laughs> you don't know how much I stare at that picture, and Travis. And it's funny that you brought up your beard earlier because when I sat down, I was like, this is not the beard that he has. <laughs> on his picture online. This is a very nice beard. It's very awesome. I uh just real quick before we go, um, just so everybody hold on, wait a second, wait for it. Hold on, hold on. It's coming, it's coming. That's his god awful logo. That's his logo. Oh I can't there's nothing I can say. <laughs> See? Travis, I love you. <laughs> It's like a Boy Scout award or something. It I don't know looks, what it's. It looks like a military award. It does, patch. like the, the bars you wear for something. <laughs> and then just the font. It's generic font from Paint. Is but what I did. bet he did that all on his own. Oh, I guarantee yes, it's all did. on his own. There's no, he did. No one else is taking like credit said, for that. We had this whole conversation. <laughs> yeah. With Jason. Say, <laughs> no. oh, have a reptile gumbo sexy doctor's calendar. Yikes. We're going to skip on that one, I think, Jeff. That's a, <laughs> that's a bad idea. Anyways, so Hilarious. Jeff, please help him out. That, that logo is a crime. That's to all logos everywhere. It is. James and I will get around to it when James and I get around to it. No, I'm, Jeff. I'm not in a huge rush. And again, like I said, I, Jeff is my friend. And I appreciate Jeff as my friend. And I have no expectations for him to do it or anything like that. As your friend, there's no way he wants you to go around with that as your logo. You could use AI to create a logo. I tried that. I kept no, misspelling no, shit. No, 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 no. I, I would not do that because it, Art. it, it that is, that is basically stealing and copyright infringement on so many other real artists. Oh, and that, is it? That, I played around with it. The yeah, they, they train mine. the AIs by feeding them other artists' Lord. art, oh. and then 
it like basically oh. just takes pieces of their art and cannibalizes it in. Bill, have um, you ever thought about having AI just go ahead and write your research for you? Just chat GPT had, uh, that stuff. I, I reviewed a paper a couple months ago that was clearly someone they had had, they had an AI write a section of it. Uh, how, how'd you feel? Did you like, respond to him and go, uh, get the shit out of my face? <laughs> I, I, uh, I can't remember what I, I'm sure what I said was very professional at the time, but it was, it <laughs> not was definitely so. Yeah, not in my head, no. Uh, as, a, as a, I can't, I, I luckily don't have my kids write stuff where that's an issue, uh-uh. uh, but I can't imagine teaching lock the browsers professor down so it's not an issue where someone has to write stuff. You can lock the browsers down all you want, but like if it's something they have to take home, oh no, 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 and there's no, apps on their home. phone, you can get it anywhere now. I just can't imagine having to grade homework. shit now with AI. It's this I've world. switched it on, so I will ask them, I will ask the AI my exam question, and I'll give my students the AI's answer and have them say, okay, why is this wrong? And make sure you look by like real. That is that ingenious. is brilliant. I'm totally gonna use that, especially in like, especially in like my field where it's like, you know, so explain, explain the evolution of skull as you're going through. I some could like totally charts. have AI write stuff that's grammatically incorrect for my kids to correct and edit. <sighs> this is brilliant. Found more ways to do less work. Yes. Good job. All right. Smarter, not harder. <laughs> let's, Absolutely. Let's get out of here, uh, Bill. Travis, hang around a second. Everybody else, uh, good night. We'll be back next week with uh, somebody. Throw on the count. I'll figure it out. We have a guest on the next calendar. Week. You've got the next okay. couple of weeks lined up. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening. Check out our friends over at Little Shop of Horrors, VivTech, memory code Gumbo22, save you 15%. Uh, go check out Herp's Reptile Shows for one near you soon. And good night, guys. Bye. Bye.